Welcome to Couch Buddies. I'm Kia. And I'm Michelle. And we are wrapping up the month of October. We're wrapping up our hit, our Alfred Hitchcock theme month. We are talking about probably the best known Alfred Hitchcock movie, and we are discussing Psycho. Psycho was made in 1960. Stars Anthony Perkins, Janet Leigh, John Gavin, Vera Miles. It's directed by Alfred Hitchcock, of course. Written by Joseph Stefano. Uh, well, rather adapted by Joseph Stefano, mm-hmm. who wrote a number of other things, but he also wrote for the Outer Limits TV show. He wrote a couple of episodes. Okay. And then, because I have to do this, he wrote an episode of the next Gen- Star Trek Next Generation. Of course. A season one. He wrote Tasha Yar's Death. Ha ha ha. So that amused me greatly. Um, it is based on the novel by Robert Block, which I read. The score is by Bernard Herman, because that is the. Without the, the score, this is not as this is this is still good, but it is not perfection oh, like it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it has an IMDb rating of eight point five out of ten. Rotten Tomatoes of ninety six percent. The Hollywood Reporter and Variety both liked it. Both both in the article is hilarious. They were like, "And the director has asked us not to spoil the movie, but we're going to do it anyway." Yeah. <laughs> Let me just tell you that he's. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Oh they, yeah, they like they're like we're not going to spoil it. We'll just say, and then they proceed to tell you what's going on with Norm Bates. And I was yeah. like, how is that the, not spoiling the movie? Yeah, well, the <laughs> like that is that is adamantly spoiling the movie. Um, I will say, Time Magazine did not like the movie. Yeah, I knew that. They thought it was too gratuitously violent. Yeah, well, this was because this was because we talked. You know, we did a whole preamble about the uh-huh. Hayes Code. By 1960, the mm-hmm. Hayes Code, like, its strength had, like, really started to wane. Oh, yeah. And, and so people had been kind of chipping away at it for years. And so by this point, it was sort of a, like, okay, we're gonna, like, we're just gonna, like, Sparta kick the last vestiges of, yeah. of the Hayes Code. Like, we're just, we're just straight up ignoring it now. And, and so that's kind of what psycho was doing and so it was it was sort of a like go big or go home and you'll have to tell me if i'm right or not because i saw this on an episode of qi so i'm uncertain yes because it wasn't i know what episode you're talking it about it wasn't sandy or or uh steven that said it so that's why i'm like i have to double check the veracity but they were talking about maybe sandy did say it actually it's been a while but they talked about how no studio would actually make this really he had to use his television yes. production crew. That's and, it and was, the black and white was to save money. It was yes. The the black and white was to save money. Um also he had worked with the TV crew previous to this too. No. One be, because and this was a little bit later in his career. I like yeah. some of the reading that I was doing. He was just comfortable with his TV crew. Like yeah. they had a rhythm, so it was just kind of easier to use the TV crew. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, it it was it was a bit out of necessity, and also because of just it was easier. The episode of Time is one with Trevor Noah where he hadn't yes. seen the movie. Yeah, I laughed yes. really hard at Trevor at Trevor Noah. Being like you just spoiled the movie for me. <laughs> and um, with Alan, Alan, yeah, Alan was like. Th- it's right there like you can right. see like how can i spoil it 
Yeah. It's very funny. It. Oh, my God. That, like, I just want... That actually happened to come up this week on YouTube randomly in clips. Like, it wasn't uh-huh. like I went searching oh, yeah. for it. I, I know it randomly I know exactly. I know exactly what you're, what you're talking about. But, like, it was just... It was random. Like, I didn't go looking specifically for it this week. It just happened to show yeah, up in and my... The, yeah, because the... Because if I'm not mistaken, it's also in that episode that that Trevor Noah speaks in in Closa, and maybe I, it was just a clip, like it yeah, was just that clip. It, yeah, that there's thing. it's also that same episode. Like I said, he he speaks in in Closa, and and Sandy, famous like very famous lesbian Sandy Toxvig is like watching Trevor Noah <laughs> speak speak in this African language, and she is just like, I might be on the turn. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> like just just it's just that moment of like this is something very smart i'm very attracted to it like <laughs> you could just see it it was great well and then the other thing that i think is really cool and i'm sure you're gonna bring this up as you talk about it but the fact that he re- re- hitchcock requested not that it was obeyed by everybody but hitchcock requested that once the movie started no one else be allowed in yeah this, like, this set a precedent yeah because typically movie theaters would just kind of at the time mm-hmm would would just like you know like open the movie theater at like 10 o'clock in the morning and and then you know when they close at like 10 o'clock at night or whatever i'm just yeah. ma- pulling shit out of my ass um they would just like start the movie and then like it would just run loop on a it, loop yeah. all day long and so you would buy a ticket and you would go into the movie theater and say like you got there at ten thirty. the movie started at 10 and then oh okay well i missed the first half hour and so you stay and like watch the first half hour. Yeah, yeah, you you stay like you stay, and then like as soon as the movie starts, like you you watch the first part that you missed, and then like okay, and then you get up and leave. Now you've seen the whole movie, and and so th- with this movie, like Hitchcock, like you know, like strong armed theaters mm-hmm. into like once this movie starts, like you do not admit people, like they have to see the whole thing from beginning to and end, and they do like because if you watch this movie out of out of context or whatever mm-hmm. see different pieces of it because i mean i before i saw it because like i have a you've probably seen it for hundreds of years before i ever <laughs> i ever watched it because uh-huh. i've only seen it one other time uh-huh. but it's it's an indelible movie it stayed with me like i remember yeah. everything in it before i didn't remember how like one or two things happened but i remembered everything in it i mean the shower scene is like the best one of the most famous like mm-hmm. murder scenes on film just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone has seen that, I think. Yes. But uh, everyone knows the shower scene and everyone knows the Bernard Horm- Herman score. Yeah. Like that's like, if nothing else, that is what everybody takes away from so, this movie. In college. Uh huh. In my class with one of our, one of our professors who liked to show movies. Yes. Um, we were getting ready. Semester was almost over and he had announced we were not going to have a final. And some genius in the class went oh but doctor i love when you have us watch movies i could tell you the person too but i won't i love it i mean you you could tell me and cut it out i don't it was um one of the ones who like to kiss up a lot uh uh male or female female oh okay it kissed up to the professor the professor was male yes no i that i as soon as you said professor and movies i I knew exactly you're talking about i love i love when you let us watch a movie for the final like can we just do something like that yep yep, yep. okay our final i needed those two hours Mm -hmm. thanks and it's finals week you need every like spare nanosecond you can get he started talking about he goes well i don't know like that wouldn't be very fair to people that need time and i want to give people a chance and then it came out that that knowing our class had seen casablanca or psycho Mm -hmm. so he went 
well, let's vote. Which one do you guys want to watch? And I'll make that a requirement. You have to show up for it. We had to show up. So we literally, someone went, what are the run times? And we picked the shorter of the two. Yeah. Because we didn't want to be stuck in the classroom for like three hours while he talked about Casablanca. Mm-hmm. So we watched Psycho for a final. Yeah. In college. My junior year i want to mm-hmm. say maybe senior year even so i've only seen it the one time and it was 14 years ago mm-hmm. but it like that's how much it stuck with me is i remembered basically everything in this movie with the exception of like how like two or three things yeah. toward the end occurred yeah same here um by the way i should probably give oh, the, synopsis. the synopsis i figure everybody just knows what it's about <laughs> yeah but if like on the rare chance that somebody here hasn't <laughs> seen psycho or knows nothing about it the brief synopsis is a phoenix secretary embezzles forty thousand dollars from her employer's client goes on the run and checks into a remote motel run by a man by run by a young man under the domination of his mother yep um i have a lot there's this is probably going to be a lengthy professor kia corner um because <laughs> i have lots to say about the influence of of psycho and also real world things that inspired psycho mm-hmm. so this is going going to be probably the one and only time on this podcast we discuss true crime <laughs> um, i will before, before yeah. you to talk about like my other job I mm-hmm. usually talk about, like, what other things people have made. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so Anthony Perkins did go on to make Psycho 2, 3, and 4, which I think is hysterical that they made a Psycho 2, 3, and 4. Um, not that they were probably bad movies. I know nothing about them. Like, literally, I've... I know nothing. I know I saw part of the second one. I couldn't tell you anything about it. Uh, the synopsis for the second one, that's the only one I read, said yeah. that Norman gets released from treatment and goes back to the yes. motel and tries to suppress his his mm-hmm. whatever. I, I, yeah, Robert uh, Robert Block, the author, he also wrote he also wrote two sequels. Yeah, and but the movies took nothing from those books. Uh, and then uh, there's also the show Bates Motel, which was supposedly the prequel, which I never watched it, but I love Freddie Highmore. And the clips I saw of Freddie Highmore mimicking Anthony Perkins were just insane. Yes, um, our I think our listener Tila is well acquainted with that show because if I'm not mistaken, Tila has a very large crush on, on Vera for you. I can never, for me, for, uh, for me go, for, yeah, for, for, I can whatever. never pronounce her last yeah, name. She, and she plays I, mother. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I Norma because yeah. Because Tila and I became Tumblr friends. So I see a lot of Vera Farmiga on my dash. <laughs> anyway, nothing wrong just, with that. I just yeah. want to throw that out before you start the true crime stuff is that there yes. are other like, well, parts of this tale that you can find out there to watch yes if you you feel so inclined go for it yes i'm i'm going to start off talking about psycho's influence on the horror genre because if you are you know if you've listened to this podcast before you will know i love horror movies michelle does not that is correct um and psycho is kind of widely considered to have launched the slasher subgenre of horror movies uh, there's another film that predates psycho by a few months called peeping tom um that also um contains the themes of like voyeurism and like sexualized violence and things like that but it was a bomb and nobody saw it <laughs> so psycho gets the credit um but you know as i said um you know i i love horror movies and my two like favorite 
genres of horror movies. Like I love a like a haunted house or like a ghost story. Because I can say, like, one of my favorite movies, it's not actually a haunted house. Like, there's a ghost involved, but it's not a haunted house. So, a haunted house slash ghost story followed by slasher flicks. Because if I were to list, like, my top five favorite horror movies, Halloween and Scream are right up there. They're now, both slashers. I do like Scream. Yes. I do like, I, I watched them with you in college, and yes. I do enjoy Scream. It reminds me of like a supernatural episode. So kind of, like, yeah. Like it doesn't get worse than that. Yeah. So I'm not. Well, you know, and like I particularly love, you know, Halloween, like the original from 1978 and, you know, in the Scream franchise, as I said, because um, Halloween, because it's a classic and kind of like Psycho, the music does a lot of the heavy lifting. Mm. I can hear it completely out of context in the Halloween theme. Like, I nearly piss my pants in terror. Like, it's so, like, it freaks me out. Um, but like, it's a classic. It's very effective, you know, with all the spooks. Um, and the Scream series, like, it terrifies me for other reasons. And it's because basically nothing frightens me more than an entitled white man who feels they're owed something. <laughs> <laughs> and when when you boil it down, that's... Especially the villains of one and three. Yeah. Two, eh, kind of. Four, it's not. Uh, four, it's not. Because four is more classified as a reboot. Well, now we got five it, coming. I know. I have mixed feelings about it. I will. It's Courtney Cox and David Arquette and yes. Campbell. So I will watch it at some point. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, like entitled white men who feel like they have a score to settle. Nothing terrifies me more. Um, so like 90% of slasher. Just kidding. Actually, no. I'm just kidding. I mean, kind of, like, sort of. But I'll get into yeah. it. Um, but the, you know, the slasher uh, subgenre of horror, the hallmarks of it is, it ba- like, they, they feature a serial killer murdering people with bladed tools. Yep. Slasher. So uh, many slasher films, they feature elements of psychological horror, which is an influence carried over from, like, carried into the genre from things like Psycho. Mm-hmm. Or the, like, another influence of, like, there was Italian, uh, like, giallo uh, films, which those were more, like, crimey, like, murder kind of mysteries that had, like, a psychological effect in it. But, you know, it all kind of meshed into the slasher genre. Um, They have a set, they basically have a set formula for the most part of, like, a past wrongful action causes trauma which is reinforced by an anniversary and this activates the killer and they tend to feature stalking and creative murder sequences. Yep. So, um, notably the slasher genre, uh, created the enduring trope of the final girl. Mm -hmm. So, um, the final girl is the, um, the, the virginal, the, the virtuous girl who, you know, survives the the fatal like repercussions of her hedonistic peers. My um, brain just like cabin of the woods now. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm just like anyway. I, I'm not a virgin. Well, we take what we can get Ugh. in this day and age. Um, but you know, for examples of final girls, like look no further than Queen Ellen Ripley from the Alien series. You know, Sydney Prescott and Gail Weathers from Scream. All of, like, Jamie Lee Curtis's characters in the Halloween movies, uh, Prom Night, The Fog, and Terror Train, she kind of had, like, a, like, back-to-back thing with 
those movies. And so that's kind of what earned her the title of a scream queen. Um, and then we have, it wasn't until recently that I saw the movie black Christmas from 1974, but it features what is probably now one of my favorite final girls, which is the character of Jess played by Olivia Husey, who is best known for playing, uh, Juliet in the seventies version of Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. Um, she is a final girl. But she bucks the, like, the virginal, like, virtuousness trend before it was ever kind of even established because it she's in her sorority, it's Christmas time, they're having, like, a big old like, drunken rager, and so, like, she's drinking at the party, and then you find out, like, partway through the movie, like, she's actively seeking an abortion. Like, and her her boyfriend is like, no, like, we're getting married. And she's like, uh, no, we're not. <laughs> and um, and so, like, she bucks, you know, she bucks that trend, and I appreciate it. Um, but the thing, another thing about slasher movies is that they typically center around, like, the characteristics of the villain, rather than the victims because mostly the victims are disposable and pretty much identical from movie to movie. Mm -hmm. This is why we get the movie Cabin in the Woods where we have the archetypes. The people don't matter. Which, if you haven't seen Cabin in the Woods and you are at all interested in horror tropes, I highly recommend it. Just go into it knowing it's like a parody type film. Yes. Um, But it is... like I don't like scary movies, once again. And so Kia pre-watched this one for me to make sure it was okay. But it's it it is it takes that it's got it's got a Hemsworth in it. Yep. You know, and it it takes that idea and just flips it in such a fun way. Yes. Also, it, it is both a love letter and a deconstruction yes. of horror, and, and it, I love it. It's so enjoyable. Um, the you know typically like I mentioned, Scream, and this is another thing probably why Scream is so indelible to me, and like one because I saw it when I was a teenager, but also, um, the fact that. Like, it it differs just slightly because, as I said, um, with with most slasher features, everything is predicated on, for lack of a better term, the personality of the villain. And so that's why, like, the Halloween movies is, like, it's, you know, it's it's the Michael Myers movies. Nightmare on Elm Street. It's the Freddy Krueger movies. Like, Child's Play. It's the Chucky movies. And, you know, Jason Voorhees, Leatherface, Candyman. They are all about the villain, whereas Scream focuses on its on the the story of its heroine and the identity of the Ghostface Killer changes each movie. Probably why I enjoy it as well. Yes. Um, so, like the first few decades of film, mostly brought literary and or like supernatural based horror movies. So you get like Nosferatu, <laughs> Frankenstein, They're Dracula. Almost, always play a Belagosi. <laughs> Um, you like said no, like Nosferatu, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, The Mummy, and approximately eighty-seven adaptations of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Oh yep. my fucking god! Uh huh. Um, then like the post-war years brought um, fears of invasion and nuclear fallout. So that you know gives us Godzilla and War of the Worlds in the fifties. The sixties was just didn't really bring anything new to the table. It was the gimmicks. Of, like, you know, Piranha 3D <laughs> and <laughs> shit like that. Um, and it wasn't... In, so then the 70s, the, the the early 70s, we get the we get a return to the supernatural-based horror. But 
it, with a bend toward occultism. And so that's where we get, or like occultism and Satanism. So that's where we get uh, the Omen and the Exorcist and also bringing more literary horror because that's when we get Stephen King's Carrie, mm-hmm. which then leads us into the shining in the eighties and stuff, stuff like that. Um, but it's during this time, it's during the seventies that the slasher starts to find its feet beginning with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and black Christmas, both in 1974. Um, Chainsaw Massacre, it kind of gave way to a lot of quote unquote, based on a true story, horror flicks. Um, because, uh, Chainsaw Massacre, it took, Inspiration from Ed Gein. More on him in a bit. <laughs> um, um, Not the only one. <laughs> yeah, and um, and so then like that that kind of, that gave us movies of the town that dreaded sundown, which is based on the Texarkana like Phantom Killer, and you know, and then we have movies based on Son of Sam and like the Sawney Bean Legend and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, but it was Black Christmas specifically that paved the way for John Carpenter's Halloween. In 1978, which sparked the quote-unquote golden age of slasher movies, um, which, by the way, Halloween pays homage to Psycho. Not just in the fact that we have Jamie Lee Curtis, daughter of Janet Lee, as the lead of Halloween, but also in the fact that Donald Pleasance, who plays the doctor who has been treating Michael Myers all these years, his name is Dr. Sam Loomis. Oh. Um, so from how, like, move, like the direct line from Halloween, we get Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Prom Night, Terror Train, My Bloody Valentine, House on Sorority Row, Child's Play, Sleepaway Camp, etc. But kind of by the mid 80s, people started losing interest in the slasher genre. And the thing about horror movies is they're so fucking cheap to make. Mm-hmm. They really are. And there's a million saws. Yes. They're cheap to make, like, they don't really need a lot of plot, because, I mean, you're just there to watch people killed in really creative ways. That's it. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, that's just what you want to (laughs) watch. You know? I'm like, I that, you know, like, I've said it before, I'm like, one day, I was particularly, like, really angry. I was just in a mood, and I couldn't put my finger on why. And so I came back to the dorm room and I put on Congo and it made me feel a lot better because some days you just need to watch a gorilla rip a man's face off. (laughs) And I feel that way about horror movies sometimes. Um, But because, like I said, horror movies are so cheap to make. And by the 80s and with the invention of the VHS, we get a lot of kind of direct-to-video sequels that dominate kind of the rest of the decade like pretty much like 85 through 95 until scream revitalized the genre in 96 and and then that brought in a very brief like flash in the pan i didn't realize how brief it was um it was basically like a five years of um of these kind of meta horror films that that simultaneously paid like they simultaneously like paid homage and evoked the golden age of horror golden age of horror while appealing to younger audiences uh like younger and genre savvy audiences because Mm -hmm. the younger audiences who are going to see scream one they're 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 attracted to younger casts like 
Nev Campbell and Sarah Michelle Gellar and Jennifer Love Hewitt, you know, these kind of people. And also, like, fucking kick-ass soundtracks for these movies. Yeah. I, like, I still uphold, like, the Scream soundtrack is one of my favorite soundtracks ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, and so, like, Scream kicked off, like, the next year we get I Know What You Did Last Summer, and then we get Urban Legend, and these quickly followed, you know, these quickly followed Scream's success, and then, you know, all three of them, because we didn't get any other, like, those were kind of the three that we got, the three mm-hmm. sort of original horror movies of the mid to late 90s and they just did sequels like they just did their own sequels and they kind of limped across the finish line into the 2000s before falling into the glut of remakes that sort of that took over the horror landscape until the 2010s and um because my bloody valentine is in there somewhere house of wax uh prom night black christmas yeah like, the remakes of all those yeah. uh friday the well, th- friday the 13th i know house yeah. of wax my bloody valentine because jensen and jared yeah so that's why my brain went to them jared also did friday the 13th oh that's right he did that's yep. right I forgot that. um and you know and then like cry wolf during this time like there's just like you said it was all remake Freddy versus and, jason was like 2000 yes wasn't it? and and again it was the kind of it was the gimmicky stuff yeah that's of, yeah, yeah. you know like i just remember that one because a bunch of guys i knew were real interested in seeing it yeah Freddy versus jason is sort of the 2000s and like horror equivalent of like pacific rim you don't care what happens you just want to watch two giant it's like godzilla versus mothra yeah it's, yeah it's you the, yeah. you just want to watch king kong versus godzilla yeah. yeah you yeah you're just there to watch like two horror movie legends like beat the shit out of each other that's all you're there for after seeing it one of my guy friends was really really po'd about it yeah <laughs> so it sticks in my brain well, yeah, and then that's also when we get, you know, like, Leprechaun in space and shit like that. <laughs> Warwick Davis does not deserve that level of, like, disrespect. <laughs> anyway, um, but after, like, after the 2000, or, like, into the, the 2010s, we get, like, a few standouts of the the slasher genre, mainly, like, Cabin in the Woods, and It Follows, and then the movie The Guest with Dan Stevens, which I still have not seen, and I want to, um... And and then kind of more recent um, entries into the genre, we've got Jordan Peele's, like, remake slash sequel of Candyman um, that just came out this year. And then we've got Netflix's uh, Fear Street trilogy, mm-hmm. um, as well as Netflix's uh, adaptation of Stephanie Perkins' book, uh, There's Someone Inside Your House. The movie's fine. Read the book. It's much better. Um but from there, like, slasher movies have just kind of been few and far between. But, you know, this isn't surprising, given that horror movies, they, horror movies are a reflection of societal anxieties. And white men with bladed weapons stalking teenage girls in well-off suburban neighborhoods, not really high on anybody's worry list anymore. <laughs> um, because there are so many other things to be anxious about. But... You know, that was because back during, you know, the 70s, like and like when the slasher movie kind of came into its own was that was, you know, like I said, it was it was these like masked white men stalking teenagers. It was we brought the danger to the suburbs because all these, you know, like all these white people had started fleeing 
the cities in like moving into the suburbs in the 50s and 60s to get away from the urban read people of color like and like from these like urban and dangerous areas and so now oh we're white people we're moving out to the areas where we're safe and now oh no like now we're in danger this isn't supposed to happen to us well-off white people that's that's what slasher movies were about and these like I said the economic anxieties and and that's just not necessarily what people are afraid of anymore mm-hmm and also the true crime genre, because in the early 90s, it just became cheaper to stick a camera in a courtroom. Yeah. You know, than it was to, uh, you know, like even a cheaply made horror movie. It was just cheaper to, like I said, stick a camera in a courtroom. And so the true crime uh, entertainment genre started to take off. But I mentioned Ed Gein. And so I'm um, going to talk a little bit about Ed Gein. He was... He was an inspiration for Norman Bates and as well as Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. And Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie that is so good that people ignore the fact that it's a horror movie because it's cinema. It's a film. Well, it's, I mean, it's Anthony Hopkins, so. Yes. <laughs> But like I said, it, it, I mean, it won Oscars. It yeah. is, the, like I said, it is the one that people ignore the fact that it is a horror movie because it is so good. <laughs> I'm like, I have problems with it. Um, but the thing is, like, contrary to popular belief, Ed Gein was not actually a serial killer because um, the kind of like the requirements to obtain the title of serial killer is like you have to kill three people with like a cooling off period in between and usually have like some sort of signature like modus operandi. Ed Gein only killed two people. Ed Gein was a grave robber. <laughs> um, but the thing about Ed Gein is that um, he had a, he had a very like religiously domineering mother. He was a loner. Um, and in 1944, his mother had a very debilitating stroke and he took care of her until she died of a second stroke in 1945, at which point he nailed her bedroom shut and like to preserve it. And like, nobody can go in here. It is now his mommy shrine. And, and later, like he told, like, he later told the cops that he had quote, that upon the passing of his mother, he had, quote, lost his only friend and one true love and was absolutely alone in the world. Now, this is happening in 1957. So two years before Psycho is published. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's during this, like I said, November 1957. This is when Ed Gein is arrested in his hometown in Plainfield, Wisconsin, 35 miles away from where Robert Block is writing Psycho. Um... And he and so he's arrested for the murders of two women. And then when the police searched his home, trigger warning, because this is gross. Um, when, <laughs> when the police searched his home, they found furniture, silverware, and clothing made out of human skin. Yum. Um, as well as body parts. Um, it's so it's so gross. It's one of those things of like, it's so terrifying. Like my brain kind of puts up a wall and can't really process it. Yeah. The fact that the man had a belt made out of human nipples. That's weird. Yeah. 
Um, and like upon examination from psychiatrists, they basically theorized that he was trying to make a woman suit to wear so that he could pretend to be his dead mother. Um, who, as I said, neighbors described as like a puritanical woman who dominated her son. Um, and, and so, as I said, at the time that, that Ed Gein was arrested, you know, 35 miles away, Robert Block starting to write Psycho. And Block, this is one of those things of, like, Block swears that he knew nothing about the stuff going on with Ed Gein. And I'm like, okay. Like, maybe. <laughs> Seems unlikely. Seems unlikely. Because we we live about 30 miles away. Yeah. If, like... Like, you know, I don't, like, read the news a ton, but, I mean, if if somebody found a house here where somebody had made lamps and seat covers out of human skin, I think I would hear about it. You never know. <laughs> I mean... At the very least, especially in the 40s, 50s... Yeah, this is 1957. That You would have heard about it then. Yeah. More than you would now, because the new cycle is relentless now. Yes. But um, but then he would have heard about it every time he turned on a radio, every time he turned on a television, every time he saw a newspaper. Yeah. It would have been all over. Yeah. Um, and so it basically, like... He may not have even realized he heard about it. Now that I'll give you. True. But it may have just he, seeped into his consciousness. Yeah. Block, Block says that he wasn't aware of the Ed Gein case and that he began writing the, no, the novel with, quote... Uh, the notion that a man that the man next door may be a monster unsuspected, even in the gossip-ridden microcosm of small town life, which, which is, is also a fair yeah. I mean, um, that's but a, that's another pretty yeah, common. Apparently, towards like the end of writing, that was when like he heard about he heard about Ed Gein, and um, like when the novel was almost completed, then he heard about Gein. And included, like, a one-off line about Ed Gein in the final chapter of the book. And, like I said, I read the book. The book is only 200 pages long. It's a very quick read. Um, it's 17 chapters. The The Janet Lee character, it, which in the novel is called Mary Crane, she's in two of the 17 chapters. Um, and the... Um, but, yeah, the the thing about... Like, Ed Gein just kind of stuck around in public consciousness for a long time. And um, and I'm going to, like, quote... Because well, it's that horrible thing, like like what you said about the novel. It's that guy next door that seems... He's just a quiet loner. And so we don't... Like, you don't think anything's up with him. And then finding out the horror of what's yeah, actually going the, on next door. The, yeah. The thing, the thing about Ed Gein, it was like, everybody was like, yeah, I mean, he's kind of weird and quiet, but I mean, he used to like babysit the town kids and like fucking take him to the movies and buy popcorn for him, you know? So, so we don't think anything about him. Yeah. He's yeah. harmless. He's just <laughs> like a little said, weird. Yeah. He's and, just a little so weird. That like, in some ways it's bad, but it's also because it vilifies that type of person that is a loner and that kind of stuff that isn't, at all bad because there's a lot there's a lot more of those type of people than there are the yeah. Edgeens of the world yes exactly but but it does it is that horror of like what's actually happening yeah. that you don't know about behind the scenes like yeah that, that is a fascination it, that people yeah. always have and it's why we like the paparazzi because we can see what's going on but in other people's lives it's why rubbernecking or you can't look away <laughs> from an accident as you're driving yeah. by it's that weird thing that we have collectively mm -hmm. and 
and and like and that that's just a you know just a thing of like just just thing like of society and um and the fact that like in like and this this was kind of like just a thing that I wanted to come on to of I'm not going to talk about it a lot because like yes Silence of the Lambs is very groundbreaking I don't particularly enjoy it um partly because of how Buffalo Bill is inspired by Ed Gein of like Ed Gein had I'm trying to think of the way to phrase it because like in interviews like with the police and like psychiatrists and things like that like Ed Gein like did fully admit that of like these parts that he had collected of these women whose graves he had robbed that you know he did like he would put on these parts as a way to sort of cancel himself out and become who he thought he should be. And it's in some ways saying without saying that he felt for a lack of a better way of putting this, excuse me, I apologize for the words about to come out of my mouth, but that he felt more at ease in a woman's skin. Yeah. And again, apologies for the phrasing. Um, but, um, and so then going, like, the direct line from Ed Gein to Psycho to then Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill is just a very, like, inherently transphobic character mm. in that he's, like, he's denied a sex reassignment operation, and so therefore he starts kidnapping women to kill them, to make a suit out of them. Because if if he's not going to be given the thing that he wants, he's going to take it by violently killing these women and making a suit out of them so he can get what he wants. And it takes... And also at this time, this is like... Like at the time that of what happened with Ed Gein and then, you know, three years later we get Psycho. This is still during a time when, when homosexuality, when basically queerness is illegal. Yeah. And, and that, um, they, at one point in the movie, they call Norman a transvestite. Psychiatrist corrects it. The psychiatrist, no, it's, he corrects the use of the term. He doesn't correct the term, but at that time, uh, transvestitism was considered a mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so this is at a time when like when these things and like what, like the direct line to what is essentially like, um, the, like I'm, I'm fucking up the things that I'm trying to say, but basically the direct line from like queerness to like, like trans identity of like it being, like somehow a disease and that it is a mental affliction and all these things. And I'm like, so the direct line from Ed Gein into psycho to like Buffalo bill and like having how this affects the slasher genre, which is inherently like misogynistic and violent of like a very like sexualized way of killing somebody Mm And, and all of this, it's just, it's something that like, I have been thinking a lot about lately. And, um, but, and also, and also in the book, um, there, there are some, there's some slight differences in the book and the movie. Um, mainly that, 
uh, the character, I'm just going to call her Marion because in the movie they had to change her name to Marion because there actually was a Mary <laughs> Crane living in Phoenix. Um, so they change it to Marion. Um, in the book, she is not stabbed. She is decapitated. Ooh. Um, and then rather than being, you know, young and attractive Anthony Perkins, um, Norman is, he's an overweight, like bespectacled, like 40 something blackout drunk who is obsessed with taxidermy, occultism, Satanism, spiritualism, sadomasochism, and pornography, and is very misogynistic. Surprise, surprise. Um, just, I want to like a couple of quotes, um, from the book that I wanted to highlight of when we see him like looking through the peephole at Marion, he's like, quote, he could see, he could see plenty. Let the bitches laugh. He knew more about them than they ever dreamed. She turned away and, and Norman almost called out to her, come back here, you bitch. But he remembered just in time. And then he saw that she was unhooking her bra. And, and so, yeah, it's a lot of of like the denigration of women and and all of this um but yeah so like i said that is just a lot of thoughts that i have had in my <laughs> head and real quick another little true crime tidbit that i wanted to throw in here because i only found this out recently and it fascinated me so um and then this pertains to the movie and not, not the book, not Ed Gein, nothing like that. But it's well known kind of now that it, like everybody knows like Janet, like Janet Lee. And she said it at the time. She's like, there was nobody else in that shower, but me. And like, she spent a week filming the shower scene. However, like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock did, you know, he did later admit to the fact that they, that they used a body double in certain shots of the scene because um and that's because Janet Lee like she didn't like want to fully get naked and just some of the things that they used to cover her up were visible in certain shots so um she had a body double for the shower scene named Marley Renfro um and you know like I said uh Janet and Hitchcock they maintained for years that every shot in the in the shower scene was was like um, was Janet Lee, but you know Hitchcock eventually confessed that they only used Lee's face, and so for other like uh, shots of the body, it was Marley Renfro. Janet Lee also had a second body double who was her lighting stand-in, and this woman was named Myra Davis. Now, um, in 1988, so this is almost 30 years after this movie is made, Myra Davis was raped and murdered by her neighbor. Um, but the media mistook her as the shower scene double. And so there was a lot of confusion and everybody thought that it was Marley Renfro who had been murdered rather than Myra Davis. And, and so like I said, leading to this confusion. So cut to 2010 when, um, we have Robert Graysmith, um, writes, he like <laughs> Robert Graysmith writes a book about uh he writes a book called the girl in alfred hitchcock shower and sets the record straight robert graysmith robert graysmith was a cartoonist at the san francisco chronicle during the time of the zodiac killings and if you have seen the movie zodiac which is based on one of the books that he wrote about the case robert graysmith is the man who was portrayed by jake gyllenhaal <laughs> <laughs> so 
I was just like, there's a lot. Oh yeah. my god. I was like, I was like the fact that that the movie is kind of based on like a real like true crime thing. Like the movie is based on it, and then there is an actual Which, true crime yeah. like linked to the movie. Anyway, I have talked for like a million <laughs> years. I am going to shut up now. Well, I am sorry. I, I'm actually going to give you one more thing that I wanted to hear a, a Kia rage for just like two oh, seconds. Lay it on me. Uh, I mean, there was the Vince Vaughn remake of this <laughs> movie. It's shit. <laughs> but wasn't it like shot for shot dialogue? It's shot for shot. Yeah. Yeah. Like and. I remember seeing a bit of that even before I saw like Psycho. Here, here's the but, thing. But like Vince Vaughn in no way wor- like he can be scary. It just doesn't work for me in no. the bits that I've seen. No. For like they're not going to lie, there's another part of me that would like now another Psycho remake, but if you get anybody to play Norman Bates, I no one else can have this role. But Andrew Garfield. Oh yeah, he'd be great. Too. Nobody yeah, yeah. else gets it. Um, it it is his and his alone. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I saw it. I yeah, saw I it. You did. I saw it in 1998. I remember I, you did not like it. When oh we yeah, talked about it before. No, you were like, no, <laughs> it it is shit. Like. <laughs> It's like everybody in that movie is a like cardboard cutout. I even like went back and looked at it. Um, I vaguely remembered Vince Vaughn. I I remembered Anne Hesh, and like vaguely remembered like that Julianne Moore was the sister. But I went back and looked at the IMDb credits. Totally did not remember that Viggo Mortensen was Sam Loomis. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't remember that either. Yeah, that's hilarious. And and it was directed by Gus Van Sant. Who, like, Gus Van Zandt, he directed a movie that, like, I've wanted to see for a long time and have just never gotten my hands on it. And it was a movie called My Own Private Idaho with Keanu Reeves uh-huh. and River Phoenix. Yeah. And I've wanted to see it for a long time. And so then I started looking through, like, Gus Van Zandt's, um, like, IMDb credits. Because, like, there was another movie that he directed, um, which I'm suddenly now blanking on. But it had, like, uh, Michael Pitt um, and some other people in it. And it was kind of a... Uh, like a is like a Seattle musician kind of parallel to like Kurt Cobain kind mm-hmm. of thing, and like I remembered wanting to see it at the time and just never did. And so like I'm scrolling through, um, scrolling through IMDb, looking at Gus Van Zandt's credits. Did not remember that Gus Van Zandt was the director of Goodwill Hunting. Oh yeah. Now that you say that, that's why it's familiar. Yeah. Yeah. When everybody talks about Goodwill Hunting, all anybody talks about is, is like the writing, yeah. is the writing and the genius of of you know like young virtuosos Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and then Robin and, and Robin Williams. Yeah. That's all anybody talks about. And so yeah, completely wiped from my memory that that was Gus Van Zandt. So he made a lot of good movies and one really not good. Well, one. and he said like it was kind of an experiment for him. Yeah. And just, you know, that it was just kind of like, yeah, it was, it was an experimental feature for him. And it was just, it could have worked if you had good people in it. I don't know. I think it's a weird idea to remake it shot for shot. I mean, it's been done. Yeah. I just, that's what I think it's a weird idea for that movie. Yeah. To remake it shot for shot when it is iconic. I agree. And also the fact that you have to bring something new to it to make it and not just color. (laughs) Yes. But I'm also like Vince Vaughn and Anne Hesh. I'm like these are not the people that you get to replace. Like, I mean, Vince Vaughn's in a slasher movie now. I've just never liked Vince Vaughn. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm real hit and miss with Vince Vaughn. 
I can't think of any hits, but <laughs> <laughs> but isn't Vince Vaughn the one in the the movie now where the girl? Yes, yes, it's yeah, yes. where he's like ends up playing a teenage girl. Yeah, but he, he was a murder serial yeah, killer. And he's then, a serial killer, and like any and, and he they body, trade bodies. Yeah, he body swaps with the, with a teeny with the teenage girl that he's trying to murder. Yeah, yeah, and it looks so dumb. It really, really does. Um, but. Also, one other thing that I want to mention, like, as we, like, as we get into talking about mm-hmm. one thing I, cause I, I was curious. And so I did some conversions, um, the $40,000 that she steals. Josh asked me how yeah. much that was. So I did yeah. So today that would be roughly $377,000. Yeah. Like, fuck. Yeah. I would take that money and run. I get it. <laughs> yes. Um, also this is like one kind of critique that I have of the movie and I get again, why they were doing it because again, they're trying to, as I, as I said before, Sparta kick the Hayes coat. Yeah. Like into oblivion. And, and so they're trying to push boundaries and get away with things until this movie, you didn't show toilets. Yeah. And you especially didn't show flushing toilets. The ripping up paper and flushing it is the goddamn dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Yeah. Especially because in the novel, this is the one thing that, like, I, for the most part, it's really faithful adaptation. Yeah. Um, but Hitchcock is right. Robert Block does give it a cop-out of that Norman... Spoilers. We're gonna get into it. But if you don't know about this movie, you've been living under a rock. Um, the The fact that Norman only goes into mother mode when he's blackout drunk. Oh. And so Hitchcock thought that was dumb. He thought it was a cop out. So he changed it to. Which, I mean, that makes sense. It would be any stressor. It, yeah. That, the, like, the way that they portray it in this film, at least. Yes. It would be a stressor. Yes. A, and, and also, I've watched a lot of Criminal Minds. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was something I was going to mention a second ago. I'm like, Ed Gein, like, his fingerprints are all over. Oh, yeah. The entire, like, 29 seasons of Criminal Minds. <laughs> Which, um, I watched a lot of Criminal Minds. And so did oh, yeah, you. Too. We enjoyed that. The cast in it. There, we enjoyed that kind of stuff. I yeah. immediately, like, when I was kind of going back through, because, like, I knew a lot about Ed Gein, but the fact that, like, when I was redoing, like, mm-hmm. some of my research, I immediately had about six different episodes of Criminal Minds pop into my head that I'm like, oh, yeah, that was based on Ed Gein. Yeah. Well, and they would mention Ed Gein on Criminal yeah, Minds they would. once in a while and, and debunk things. Yes. And, um, and, yeah, so for me, I think that's the other part of it. Like, the first hour of this is, like, the first ten minutes of a Criminal Minds episode. <laughs> yes. And then the last, like, half hour is, is the last half hour of a Criminal Minds episode. Yes. So. The, the the one thing that I was going to mention, like, as I going back to when I said the whole, like, flushing paper down the toilet was the stupidest so fucking dumb. thing. In the book, um, Lila and Sam, they get the keys to room number one um, instead of room number ten and having to sneak back in later because – Norman, like, based on everything that's been going on, he kind of has an idea that, like, somebody else is going to show up. He just doesn't know who. Mm -hmm. And so when they come, and he just kind of has a feeling. He suspects that, oh, they're related to this other thing, and decides to go ahead and put them in room number one so he can keep an eye on them. Mm. And when when he was cleaning up after Marion's death, she was wearing... She was wearing a pair of earrings. One of them fell off and he could not find it. Mm. And, but, you know, just assumed, okay, maybe it fell down the drain, something, whatever. And he just lets it go. But he thinks there's absolutely no way anybody's going to find it. Within five minutes of being in the room, Lila and Sam find the earring. Of course. And the th- like they were 
one-of-a-kind, unique, handmade earrings that Lila had specifically made for Marion by, by like, a so jeweler. If there was one piece of evidence you would not want to leave yes. in the room. Exactly. Be, see, I can see cutting that out because you would, he would have torn that room apart to find that earring. Yeah, but within the book, him being, you know, kind of a, not really slovenly, but being, yeah, 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 but being kind of a book, drunk, yeah. he just, he looked everywhere for it and couldn't find it and thought, okay, like, you know, and basically the way that he absolves it and kind of lets it go is that he thinks that mother took care of it and so that's why he's not like up in arms about it that's why he's not terrified like he thinks that mother took care of it and that mother got rid of the other earring and then they find it and so now he's like oh gotta die (laughs) (laughs) not so much but you know um but anyway, now that it's been six hours of me rambling, um, we'll get <laughs> into the movie. 40 minutes or so. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, it's fine. So the movie starts with just the score, which also the other thing I wanted to mention just as the Hitchcock person within me. Uh, this comes off of him filming North by Northwest. So people who saw North by Northwest and expected a similar experience were very shocked to walk into this movie. Yes. Because the, like literally the last movie he made before this was North by Northwest, which is a beautiful, colorful, traveling extravaganza of a movie. Mm-hmm. And then you have this, which is such a claustrophobic film. Yes. Um, and, and the score starts, and I've seen it before, like I said, the score starts and my adrenaline pumps. Like, <laughs> like, it, like I, there's nothing on screen. There's, he... pe- there's words on screen. Yeah. And adrenaline kicks in. Well, and like one thing that I, like, I saw was that... You know, Hitchcock was like, he was, Mm. he was putting, you know, the movie together and like, and he was just kind of thinking like, well, just some of this is not working. And then, you know, he wanted certain scenes like done in silence. And then like, you know, Bernard Herrmann like played himself the score and Hitchcock was like, this is fucking brilliant. And like doubled the man's salary. He wanted the shower scene to just be the noises that you would hear. Yeah. And then he played it seeing the or hearing the, the music with it, and he, like, doubled or tripled or whatever the yeah, salary Yeah, tri- tripled, like, doubled the salary. Because, and that's the other thing, and I this is something I watched on a thing a while back about Hitchcock. This is when Hitchcock still had his full, like, creative team. You mm-hmm. had you had the script writers he liked working with. You had the direct, the, the crew he liked. You mm-hmm. had uh, Edith Head. You had uh, Bernard Herrmann. You you had these, like he had like a group of like four or five people that he mm-hmm. kept around him during his like golden age when he yeah. made like Rear Window and Vertigo and North by Northwest and and those kind of movies and like this and then I think Marnie mm-hmm. was after this was right after this and those are that's the Marnie is the last one that had that full team after mm-hmm. that the team kind of broke up but that's why like a lot of the, a lot of those films have like such a great like everything is so well put together because these people were a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. Like they knew how Hitchcock worked. They knew how to work together. Yeah. It was, it was a whole thing. Yeah. I, I did like talking about like going from North and Northwest to this was that one thing that I read was that after doing North by Northwest, because it was like such a huge production mm-hmm. that Hitchcock was just like, God damn, I'm tired. And like, yeah. he didn't want to do another like kind of like, like swollen kind of like overblown production. He wanted something small and pared down. Well, someday I want to talk about North by Northwest and its influence on James Bond, but not today. (laughs) (laughs) 
North by Northwest is a James Bond movie with, except for the female is, is James Bond and not mm-hmm. Cary Grant. But anyway, it's a whole thing and I love it and I want to talk about it, but we don't have time. So, <laughs> so the, the movie starts and we're in, we get just the, like the, it's, it's very true crime esque. We get Phoenix, Arizona, this date, this time. Like, it feels very, like, <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries. Like, kind of. Like, it's like, you get, like, that the, the, that start. It's like December or whatever. I had it written down. December the 11th, Friday, 2.43 p.m. And Sam and Marion are getting out of bed together for being in bed together. And they, they had a little afternoon delight at a hotel. But Marion is kind of tired of being the, like secret not sam is divorced but he has really bad debts you learned the first scene yes and marion doesn't he, care she still wants to be with him mm-hmm. and she's really tired of just like these weekend or these weekday romps mm-hmm. in in motels she wants to be respectable and she thinks it's time to bring a respectability to their relationship mm-hmm. and sam reluctantly mm-hmm. gives in because he wants to be with her even if it's in a respectable circumstance yeah <laughs> which i thought was that really that is one thing like in the book he didn't have an ex-wife it was just that his father had died and his father had like a fuck ton of debt yeah from which the he, hardware which store yeah. yeah and so it was just it was because of that um, and she wants to be with him he says i the back of a hardware store which is where i live is not a place for you yeah like that's not it's not right to bring you in Mm-hmm. to my life in that way she doesn't care i think that's a legitimate fight too like that's a legitimate like i don't want my the person i love to have to deal with the things that i have to deal with that are hardships for me whereas the person who loves you is like i want to deal with your hardships with yeah. you that is part of being in a relationship so like it, it's a good like and the thing about this movie that is so brilliant is for like the first 40 minutes you don't mm-hmm. realize you're not watching a movie about about Marion Crane steal this money. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't. Like, if you didn't know, which Hitchcock did his best to make sure people didn't know. It's a false protagonist, yeah. And I love that. Like, she's a red herring in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Pee-wee. It's color pee-wee. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, we were just talking about Muppet Haunted Mansion before we recorded. <laughs> but, like, she is... I love that that... Because, see, that is a mystery element that I'm always a fan of. Mm-hmm. When you think you know what's going on. The old and bait then, and switch. Yeah. Or, like, you watch the Rashomon job and you see, like, two different, you know, like, five <laughs> different points of view and it's all something different. Mm-hmm. I love that aspect of things. And so I love that that, because, and, and Hitchcock, I read a quote and I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it when I say it. But he explained that basically he's playing the audience like mm-hmm. an orchestra in this movie. Yes. Like, he's not directing the pe- like he's directing the movie but he's also directing the audience mm-hmm. the audience is supposed to have specific expectations at different points in this movie mm-hmm. and they absolutely you would believe that this movie is about marion crane by the beginning mm-hmm. of it so he tells marion if he can pay off his debts in a couple of years that they might have a chance and if his wife would just get re- ex-wife would just get remarried he wouldn't mm-hmm. pay alimony anymore and she's like i would lick the stamps on the on the envelope like i don't yeah care. it's yeah in in the book a lot is made of the fact that at the time that this is going on, that like she's 27 Mm -hmm. and she isn't like, she has never been married. Like a lot of her like chances for things have dried up. Yeah. And so that like Sam is suggesting like, well, just be a couple more years. And so the fact that she'll almost be 30, like getting married, she's like, I just was was like, yeah. yeah. She's like, I I don't want that. Yeah. So they, they finally come to like the conclusion of yes, he'll come over for dinner. They will try to be more respectable. And Maybe he'll get some some evening delight when they send sister to the movies. Um, yeah. 
she goes back to the office she works in with a slight headache. Um, and we get a wonderful cameo, basically. From Pat Hitchcock. From, from Pat from Hitchcock. I love her and so much. She's so cute in this. Like, I love it. But they work in a real estate office. And a big, like, I'm going to say Texas oil man. I know that's not what he well, is. but No, that's, that's basically what he is. And in fact, like, in the book, they're from Texas. Yeah. And and so like a lot of this is her driving from Texas to California. He's, just, he's got the big hat on. He's got the suit. He's got the bolo. I think he's got a bolo tie. Maybe he's just wearing a tie. I don't remember. But he, it's it's it very screams Texas oil man to really someone does. who's watched those type of movies. Yes. Like what was it? How to Marry a Millionaire? It screams Texas oil yeah. man to me. So and he like starts immediately flirting with Marion and reveals that he's paying in cash for his daughter's house he, yeah his daughter is 18 and getting married and so he is <laughs> Marion dropped... is like gee thanks <laughs> well yeah and we have caroline which is pat hitchcock's character talking about you know her like her in-laws and you know yeah, like, with her husband and, and things like that. so it's just like marriage 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 and and this and look at my this... 18 year old daughter getting married yeah huh, is that great. her yeah is that her this man he is dropping forty thousand dollars cash to buy a home for his daughter who was about to get married and the you know the boss which mr lowry or something like that um asks marion to you know because he is really nervous about the idea of leaving that much cash in the office he doesn't want to do cash transactions. he he doesn't want to do a cash transaction at all but he's really nervous about leaving it in the safe at the office over the weekend so he asks marion to go deposit it at the bank i thought he said put it in the safety deposit box or whatever because they're gonna get a check from the guy on monday that's what he wants to do he doesn't want to do this forty thousand dollars cash he wants to return the cash and get a check Mm -hmm. because he's not comfortable having that much cash yeah i might have confused it Okay, I just didn't. Yeah. Anyway, so she, obviously she's her job. So she and he trusts her. We find out later she worked for him for ten years. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to suspect her. So she goes in and she asks him. She's like, "Is it brings the like paperwork in or whatever?" And says, "Is it okay if I go home after the bank? I've got a headache." Mm-hmm. He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead." The next thing we see is her packing her bag with the money sitting on the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, a lot of this is done with no dialogue whatsoever. Like. Mm-hmm. So much of this is done with no dialogue yeah. and just the the score, which is what makes it so so unique. I mm-hmm. think. Um, but yeah, so she takes the money. I'm like, put the money in the suitcase. Put the money in the suitcase. <laughs> People aren't gonna dig through your unmentionables most of the time <laughs> in the 1960s. They're not gonna think some poor and and also she actually squirrely like. Mm-hmm. Be, so she's as she's leaving town. She stops at a stop sight and she sees her boss. Her going, boss and the client passing across. And her boss kind of gives her the nod and then like, wait, she was going home to sleep. Yeah. And then kind of lets it go. And I'm like, just play it cool. Play it cool. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Play it cool. I say that like a hundred times in the first like 20 minutes. Play it cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so she continues out of town. She drives. She almost falls asleep, pulls over to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next day, a, a police officer stops by her car as as they would do to check, make sure everything's okay. Cars pull over the side of the road. That's mm-hmm. literally part of the job. They stop, make sure she's okay. Yeah. And then she's acting really funky. She's, she's totally sus right now. Yeah. She, and, and this guy is, is hip to, to that. Yeah. And, like, and like, because like she, she's just it very much in a hurry to go. Well, and from his perspective, it seriously sounds like she's in a stolen car. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, he, so he gets suspicious and like asks checks. for her license and checks her plates and all and that kind of stuff she, and then and lets, lets her, her go. go. 
And she takes off and he follows her for quite a distance. She thinks she's gotten free of him. So she pulls into a used car lot to immediately sell her car and buy a new one. It does take some time to get that stuff done. Mm -hmm. And the police officer pulls in across the street and just stops and stares. Because he's just, Mm -hmm. she's acting really suspicious. Like, it's not even like he's like got really good radar. She's super freaking suspicious. Yeah, in, in the book. Um, because as I said, most of like her and her sister, they're based in Texas instead of Arizona. Uh-huh. And so she actually does this like three or four times. Yeah. Like between Texas and California. So rather than just buying one used car, like trading in for like one used car, she does this like two or three times. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, damn, that's smart. <laughs> but she, she pulls into this used car lot and says, I want to take this car right here. I picked it. I'll pay the $700, whatever. I don't care. And the, the guy's like, first time a client ever high pressure to a salesman before like yeah he's 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 now suspicious because he's like you do have papers that this car belongs to you right because once again she's squirrely like she's just acting real squirrely so he he does sell her the car a little bit reluctantly tries to get her to take a spin around the block and she refuses mm-hmm. um, like nope this is fine she sneaks into her money into the forty thousand and pulls 700 bucks mm-hmm. pays him with it Drives away. The cop, as she's driving away, pulls in to talk to thing. And that's the other thing is she is several times on this car trip imagining the conversations that are going to happen behind her. Mm-hmm. And like what's going to happen. Like what's going to happen with her sister? What's going to happen with her boss? Her mm-hmm. boss is going to remember seeing her leave town. She yep. knows that. And so what's going to happen? Like mm-hmm. how is this going to work? And so she has like the same thing. She has this like. You, and I love the way it's done because it's just done through, like, dialogue. Like, we don't see, mm-hmm. like, her daydream or whatever. She's I mean, still we, driving. we spend, like, a good, like, ten, like, a good, like, ten minutes of this movie of just, like, Janet Lee like, silent behind a wheel of a car. Trying not to, like, panic. Yeah. And she finally, like, she gets to, she's getting closer, but it starts pouring and she can't see. And she gets off the main road. I'm not going to lie. I'm like the shots through the windshield when it was raining. I'm like, I got so panicky yeah. watching that. I'm like, I can't. I can't handle this. Like, I understand why she stops <laughs> at this motel. Um, and-, and it's, yeah, it's it's in the dark and in the rain, she kind of veered off the main highway. Yeah. And so now she's on like a side road. And she pulls into the Bates Motel and she, there's nobody there at first. And I'm like, take that as a hint and get back in the car and run. But so she honks the horn and Norman comes out to to like comes comes running out of the house yeah from the house to meet her and i mean we've we've all worked a job where like it's slow and like nobody's coming in so you just kind of like fuck off somewhere yeah yeah, yeah something i mean i'm thinking specifically of me when i worked at bath junkie on sundays nobody came in i had a good like three hours in the morning i would just like walk back and forth over to gloria jeans and like watch from the other like stores if you're listening to this and you uh were my boss in college please ignore this um my <laughs> muse- the museum i worked in we were very um there were security cameras all over the museum mm-hmm. and you had they, they had students on every floor supposedly um frequently if you were working the front desk and you were on the floors mm-hmm. you would wind up in the security booth just talking and hanging out mm-hmm. um that's apparently not the case anymore they're all really good perfect kids nobody gets in trouble <laughs> i but, again if you're one of michelle's former bosses at the museum don't listen to this i remember when i worked at the paper and i came over to campus because i was going to hang out with you and Anne that night or something i came and like stopped by the hotel or by the museum 
and I just kind of wandered in, and, and there was nobody's front desk. Well, no, it happens a lot. I, like I just oh. asked like, where you were, and they're like, "Oh, she should be back here." And then I went, and they're like, "Oh no, she went," to, and like, and I found you like up like in an attic somewhere. Oh, that was probably when Janelle's storage or Annette's storage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was like, I found um, you in like some attic like storage room, and we watched charmed fan vids on a laptop that was a net storage yeah i know exactly where that was yep but but there was that because that was because like, that was the first time i saw the, the prue jack nine crimes video and it was great and i still love it like i was a crossover like i found all the crossover vids i, I could know possibly find but the the thing with that was when you worked front <laughs> desk you had to like yeah obviously take the money when somebody came in and frequently we would just go sit in security, which was not yeah. that far away. And if somebody came in, we could hear it. He said, but we've yeah, all, we've all had that sort of job. Exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, Norman comes down and starts talking to her. She signs in with a fake name, says, cause she's panicked, mm-hmm. says she's from Los Angeles, says her name is Marie Samuels from Los Angeles. Yeah. It doesn't even yeah. say her name. Just writes it down. Oh, yeah. Right. Writes, writes it in the ledger. Um, and he, he's like, okay, you know, shows, shows her, he has a room one. He hesitates over it and then gives her room one. Yeah. Um, and she's like, is there some place to get food around here? He says, yeah, 10 miles up the road at Fair, uh, Fair Vale, Fairvale, which is where her boyfriend lives. Which and she's like, oh, I'm that close. At that point, I might be like, you know what? Maybe I, I would drive my car. I, at this point, I'm like, I would drive the 15 miles to Fairvale for another 10 minutes and see if this weather's going to abate a little. Yeah. And then I'm going to drive that 10 miles to Fairvale. I'm not going to spend money on a hotel. Yeah, it's, it's, it's technically 15 miles because the, yeah, it's, it's 10 miles to the, diner, to the diner, which is five yeah. miles outside of Fairvale. Yeah. But she's really tired. It's storming horrifically outside. This, the, it, like, it reminded me of the time. Like, my dad and I, it was his weekend. We were going to drive to Mansfield to the Laura Ingalls Wilder house because yeah. I was obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder at the time. Um, we did a whole episode on Laura Ingalls Wilder. Y'all should listen to it anyway. <laughs> um, and we packed bags because we thought, okay, like, yeah, sure, we'll we're going to do this and like, we'll find a place to stay and whatever. And we went and did the damn thing and, and then decided, okay, well let's just, we'll start heading back home and then like, we'll find a place to stay or whatever. And for some, like my dad just kept driving and then we get to Jonesboro and he's like, well, do we want to find a place to stay? And I'm like, we're in fucking Jonesboro. I'm like, we're 30 miles from home. <laughs> let's just go. <laughs> yeah. I'm like I um, can sleep in my own goddamn bed. But Marion is tired and it is storming really badly. She couldn't see. So she's like, I'm just going to. And she's like, he shows her the room and stuff. And, and he's like, you're not going to leave for the diner, are you? She goes, no, I think I'm just going to get some rest. And, and, and yeah, he asks, He says, you know, like, I'll, you know, I'll be in here if there's anything you need. And she says, well, I can't think of anything that I need right now other than like a hot shower and like maybe some food. And and asks, you know, about the food. And he's like, and then he's like, well, you're not going to drive. Well, I'll just, you know, I'll bring you something. Uh, you can, why don't you come to the house and have sandwiches with, like, it won't be yeah. much, but sandwiches. You can have dinner. And then, so Norman rushes up to the house and we hear a screaming match between Norman and his mother. Um, yeah. And she's we, not going to have that. It's, yeah, I've got some of it. The thing about Norman is, like, he seems like a perfectly, like, affable guy. He's a little kind of twitchy and like maybe a little over eager but i mean when when you work a job and like nobody comes in i'm like a customer comes and like like you're gonna pounce he kind of has um it's gonna sound very strange but i think you understand me he reminds me of jimmy stewart in some of his looks yes. like he's got like that kind of build and that kind of affable face mm-hmm. at first <laughs> yes um but he but like at the same time like there's nothing too out of the ordinary mm-hmm. um 
But he leaves he to go back up to the house. And, like, he took Marion into her room and, you know, said, oh, it's a little stuffy in here. And so he opened up the windows to kind of let some fresh air in. And, and it's once he leaves, Marion starts looking for... Um, she starts looking for a place to hide the money in the room. Oh yeah, and um, and while she's looking around, like through the open window, she hears she hears a woman shouting, like, "No, I tell you, no, I won't have you bringing strange young girls in for supper by candlelight, I suppose, in the cheap erotic fashion of young men with cheap erotic minds." And and he, you just hear Norman like, "Mother, please," and and he and he's. Like it just kind of goes back and forth, and like Marion is like at the window, like oh goddamn, um, that poor guy. Like she feels yeah. so bad for him, and um, and you know, and like Norman, he's arguing. We hear him arguing with with mother of saying that you know Marion, she's just she's a stranger, like in need of food, you know. But mother, you know, his mother insists that he he can't bring her in. She'll not appease her appetite with my food or my son. It's like, do I have to tell her because you don't have the guts? And then Norman comes back out of the house carrying uh, what looks like milk and sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And it's not really sandwiches; it's bread and butter. Yeah, because <laughs> we see her like buttering bread and everything. I thought she put something on. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But it's food. He's bringing food down to her, mm-hmm. and she sees him, and she's like, "I'm afraid I've got you in some trouble." And, and he, he says, "Your oh, mother just isn't herself today." Yeah, which is one of those like famous lines. Uh-huh. Mother, she's just not herself today. And she's like, well, "I'll be over in just a just a second, well, like." Well, no, what it is is that he brings it and oh, yeah. Marion is standing at the door to her open room and it's kind of the way she's standing is like she's she's very kind of like inviting him to bring it into her room. And she's like, well, since you've got it, like, let's go eat. And she kind of yeah. does gesture to her well, room. But you see him kind of, you know, this woman is inviting him into her room and you see him kind of go through a couple of phases of panic and then is like oh we'll take it in here and like goes into the parlor just off the the office the office you know what it's more comfortable in the parlor so let's go into the parlor yeah and she has hidden the money by this point in the she's wrapped it in in the newspaper and put it on the bedside bedside table table. um but yeah so he they go in and and in this room is taxidermied birds creepy and they they talk about his hobby of taxidermy for a bit because it's it's a cheap hobby like you just need you know, you just need like a needle and thread and some sawdust. It's, you know, it's, it's the preservation chemicals that, you know, are the only thing that really costs money. And they start kind of just talking they, about his life. Yes. And she, she's like, you know, you could get I, out of I here. Wanna, uh, yeah. I want to know this taxidermy conversation. It's important for later. So remember this kids. Yeah. Um, Asterisk. But, um, <laughs> but so they're, they're talking and she also tells him, you know, why do you, why do you stay? And he's like, well, you know, a, he goes through the whole story. Well, it's, of it's he, going on with yeah, he, because he kind of makes the comment, you know, like, you know, the taxidermy, like, it's supposed to be a hobby, like, but hobbies are supposed to pass the time, not fill it. And, you know, Marion, you know, comments, she's like asking, like, well, is your time so empty? And, and he says, you know, he, he runs the office and he tends to the cap, he calls them cabins, but, you know, the, he, the motel rooms, um, you know, and then the grounds. And he says, you know, he, he runs errands. Uh, for his mother, the ones that she allows, he might be be cap- like capable of doing. And Marion asks the question, you know, well, you know, do you ever like go out with friends? And you see Norman kind of like swallow with some hesitation before he says, "A boy's best friend is his mother." And it cuts back to Janet Lee, and like she is holding a piece of bread, and then she's kind of very intently looking at this piece of bread in her hand, and the expression on her face, it. 
it is like a neon sign that blaring like oh fuck i done fucked up like, like it oh, is just and, like because she she also says like you know maybe you should put her in a home yeah or you know to, to put her somewhere she can be taken care of and and you won't and, and he gets and he has a shift and she sees this and tries to like backpedal 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 um but they well, start talking yeah, about yeah you know he's like we're all in our own private traps yeah and you know he's like i was born into mine but through this conversation she is finding her own clarity this is she needed to just sit down and talk this out with somebody is Mm -hmm. basically what's been happening and so she comes to the realization that like she has put herself in her own trap and she you see this Mm -hmm. like look of resolution and determination kind of cross her face yeah and as she and as she and norma kind of winding down yeah I want to oh, yeah. interject. Yeah, there yeah, is yeah. an important thing yes, there is, of, yes. um, you know, like Marion is kind of asking like, well, why don't you just leave your mother? And he's saying, you know, he can't because, you know, she's ill and, you know, and he says like, he can't defy her and all these kind of things. And, and Norman, he kind of explains, mm-hmm. you know, that you know his father died when he was young and, and that left his mother, you know, a little bit of money, um, and she then, didn't need to work. Yeah, like she didn't really need to work. But then some years later, a man that she was seeing, you know, convinced her to build the motel. Like, and then the man died too. And just all of that, it was too great a loss for her because she had nothing left. And the way he died. Yeah, well, and, and but, you know, he says he had nothing, or she had nothing left. And Marion says, well, except you. And he says, a well, son is a poor substitute for a lover. Yeah, <gasps> And, um, and then, you know, this, this man is a walking red flag now. <laughs> kind of. Well, it's, to me, this, I, I never, I did not remember this line and I loved it so much because Marion, like once again, suggests, you know, that he leave, but Norman insists that he can't leave his mother alone. And he says, quote, her fire would go out. It would be cold and damp like a grave. Like if you love someone, you don't do that even to someone you hate. Um, and so this is where, um, you know, she brings out the notion of of putting his mother someplace, and and this is where he kind of edges further into the deep end, and um and starts talking about institutions and says it's not as if she were a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go, go a little mad, mad sometimes. sometimes. Another, pop, haven't you? One Which of the most that's famous a, quotes. That's that's the other thing of that quote, Billy. Quotes it in Scream after he yep. shoots Randy. We all go a little mad sometimes. Anthony Perkins, psycho. What is Billy's last name? Loomis. Loomis. Now that you say that, I was like, that last name does sound really familiar. Um, anyway. It's all fucking connected. <laughs> I have a conspiracy theory wall drawing like red yarn from Ed Gein all the way up, like through the future. Um, but anyway, but, um, like, but so by the end of this conversation, yeah, though, it's I, I yeah, love, we, we've had a full story arc with we have with uh, Marion and she's like, I've got to leave really early tomorrow at, at like dawn. He's like, oh, she goes, yeah, I have a long drive back to Phoenix. And so we as the audience can like breathe a sigh of relief that this character who was going down this route that mm-hmm. we because you could see she was a good person mm-hmm. and she didn't like that's why she's so squirrely and so bad at it. It's because she's a good person. So she's going to go back. We even see her like in her room doing sums to figure out how much. But I love mm-hmm. she makes well, this resolution 
and we switch point of views for the first time in the whole damn movie. We do. The whole movie because has been, been it's her perspective. As, as she, because, you know, she says she has a long drive back to Phoenix, even though she's told him that she's come from L.A. And then she says her name is Miss Crane. And she says her name is Miss Crane. And he, as soon as she leaves the office, he immediately checks the ledger and sees that it says Marie Samuels. But, but like, the moment and, yeah. she makes that decision. Uh-huh. The the narrative shifts, and uh-huh. we're no longer following Marion. Now uh-huh. we're following the story of Norman Bates. Yeah, and it's such a brilliant way to do it because it's literally a handoff. Like mm-hmm. she could have been carrying a baton, and now she just passed it <laughs> off to him. And we see him like peep on her as she's changing yep. into a robe. And like I said, we see her, we do shift back to her to see her like doing the sums to figure out how she's going to get the seven hundred dollars paid back. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is going to do it. Like she's going to do the right thing and go home and face up to everything. Yeah. And then she takes like that paper that she, upon which she was doing sums, rips it up and goes and like, puts start, it in the toilet. she starts to throw it in the bin, but then it was like, she gets an idea of like, oh wait, somebody might like be on, like I might leave clues. Yeah. And so she You're decides. You're going back to turn it in anyway. Who cares? But anyway. I know. The toilet thing is so fucking it's dumb. It's just because I wanted to show a toilet flushing. I know. The first toilet flush. I know that. And but it's it, dumb. I'm with you. But yeah, so then the <laughs> like, like Norman has been watching. He puts the thing back up and he goes back to the house. Yeah, because and- yeah, there there's there's a peephole behind one of mm-hmm. the the many paintings of birds in the parlor, and it's a peephole directly into well, room number one. This is something else that didn't come up in the taxidermy conversation, but it was in the taxidermy conversation. He talked about why he stuffs birds because birds are passive anyway so it's okay but mm-hmm. like stuffing an animal like a cat or a dog i could never do that mm-hmm. and you get the idea based on what he says that it's because those are supposed to be in motion and real mm-hmm. i think that's why he doesn't stuff his mom right there <laughs> it's the only reason it's because it's not real enough it messes up the illusion mm-hmm. but anyway so so yeah she gets into the shower we have the scene the scene that genuinely once again i screamed when it happened i know everything about the scene doesn't fucking matter i covered my face for 0.2 seconds and then went damn it i have to watch this because we're talking about it i mean basically the the only thing to really talk about is that marion is in the shower and and while she you know she's lathering up with soap we see like her back is kind of turned and through the shower curtain. This is why I hate shower curtains, too, kids. Like I don't want a shower why curtain ever. The the we see through the shower curtain. We see a we see someone enter the bathroom the and the silhouette yeah. of a person enter the bathroom and approach the shower curtain. And and it's very having just watched Rebecca. It this shot. It's very reminiscent of like Danvers stepping through mm-hmm. like that sheer curtain. Oh my god! Right, I said yeah. that when we talked about Rebecca because yeah, 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 yeah. But then and also, but then this is the sound design thing that I was yeah, talking about. The sound design. So far, it is just natural sounds, just what you'd be hearing mm-hmm. with someone in the shower. It's not until that damn curtain goes back, the, the shower curtain, oh. the shower curtain is oh. ripped aside, and it reveals a backlit, shadowy, like feminine figure wielding a very long butcher's knife who then begins like stabbing marion over these like screaming violins yeah the the the, it's it is an iconic sound everybody knows it but like just talking about it i can feel Mm -hmm. my adrenaline like oh no well and um and like like the way like this moment is described like in the book it's that like 
as the shower curtain is like pulled back, it takes Marion kind of a second. And like this, she realizes, you know, the kind of like powdered face and the rouge and everything. Like she has a split moment of recognizing like this is a deranged old woman. And then whack, like she gets her head chopped off. Um, it, and, and, and what is, I'm trying to remember the exact number. I'm going to get it wrong. But in this shot, there's like 50, 50, 50 separate cuts, 50 separate cuts. As the like the camera is cutting it to is, thing to thing to thing to thing, it is frantic and, and frenetic, brutal, yeah. as you would expect a stabbing to be. Yeah, and and we see the chocolate sauce, the blood <laughs> go down the drink. That's famously that's yeah, chocolate sauce, which I Bosco, love. Bosco chocolate sauce. And the only thing um, that prevents the only thing that prevents it, its realism is that Janet Lee couldn't wear the contacts that would have made her eyes dilated. Yeah, that's the, that's um, the only like bad yeah, yeah. it's but the i was like after watching csi i don't see a lot of arterial spray <laughs> well like that's because show that stuff yeah well not only that but like everything was mostly in the we don't actually see yeah we don't actually see any like penetration we don't see where the where the cuts are yes but it's mostly directed in like the chest and abdomen so yeah. there wouldn't be any yeah. arterial spray anyway it's true but the um but we see like now you know mortally wounded like marion like she sinks kind of to the floor of the tub and she grabs a hold of the shower curtain and then falls kind of flops over the edge of the tub and so now she's kind of half in half out of the tub and they do this really cool transition from the blood going down the the drain to her eyes yeah to her her dead lifeless eye. and then we're back to norman and he yeah he goes, mother, you, you hear, you see the, like, you hear the door close. Well, it's, the the way that it does it, it's all like a single shot of yeah. it. It pulls back from Marion's yeah. lifeless eye to pull, the camera pulls Out back. the window. Yeah. At, well, it pulls back into the room mm -hmm. and focuses briefly on the newspaper. Right. And then out the window. The, that newspaper is such a red herring. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love it. Like, this movie is full of red herring. It absolutely like is. But and yeah, so and it, it, focus, it focuses on the nightstand, like the newspaper, yeah. and then it goes out the window and the camera yeah, looks toward shot. the house. And we hear Norman screaming, you know, mother, oh my, like, mother, blood. And, and then. What did you do? Yeah. And then, like, running out of the house. And, and he gets physically ill at the sight of, of seeing uh, Marion. Mm -hmm. like he, he bursts into the room and finds her and then he immediately just like backs away in horror. Mm -hmm. But then he does the thing a good son does and mm -hmm. he cleans up after mom's mess. And this is done in silence. Like this is another what? 10, 15 minutes? It's not quite that long. It but feels like it, man. I know. It, it's, it is it, such a long time. It is an extended just, scene of like we see him. Yeah. We see him, you know, he, he goes into the office and he brings in like a mop and a bucket. Like rather than and, like, I feel like a modern show, a modern movie would have skipped some of this and just shown yeah. like the end result basically. Yeah. But we watch him spray down the tub and clean yeah. off the side he, of the thing and, and he move her up. body yeah, onto move. the plastic onto the shower curtain and yeah. then load her body in the trunk and load her thing her. and we think oh, he's gonna forget the money but he goes back at the last second doesn't know what the, it is just grabs just the newspaper grabs it and throws it in the back throws the it in car. the trunk like everything that he grabs he puts in the in the trunk and, and then, goes and submerges it in a swamp which which the, again like it there's a terrifying moment of like he's watching the car sink and it stops and you think like uh, and like you see kind of you're like oh oh yeah you see the the kind of anxiety on his face of like it stops and like you you see just all these emotions of like oh like now he's now they're gonna get caught and then 
it fully submerges. Yeah. And, and he gets this smile. And, and he smiles. <sighs> and and then we cut to Fairvale, yep. where Sam is writing a letter to Marion, and he's telling her that, you know, this tiny, like, back room in the hardware store, you know, it's not so small, and, you know, suddenly it looks big enough for the two of them, and that... Even if they're poor and cramped and miserable there, at least they'll be happy together. And and then at that moment, Marion's sister Lila, played by Vera Miles. The future Mrs. Loomis. I mean I'm just kidding. Well like I don't think that's gonna happen. But that's what happens in the book. They get married? No, it just it kind of alludes to a potential romance between them. I mean it's possible, it, but it, I don't No no it, Hitchcock was like, ain't nobody got time for that. Well um, also it would be very difficult to marry your dead sister's boyfriend. I'm just like, I mean, Angelina did it in Harry Potter, but I don't know that I would. <laughs> but yeah, so the Lila comes in horrified that she did not know where her sister is. Were you in on this together? Like, just tell me and, where she is. They don't want to arrest her. They don't want to prosecute. They he, just want the money back. Sam, Sam has no idea what Sam's the fuck. Like, he has oh. no idea what the fuck is going on. And before Lila can explain clearly Arbogast comes in yeah. the door. Private investigator Arbogast comes in. Because he doesn't believe that Sam doesn't know at first. Yeah. And so now, like, Arbogast... And he, like, can somebody explain what the hell is going on to me, please? Because yeah, I don't know what's he, happening. Yeah, Arbogast, he he followed Lila to Fairvale. Um, and, and he explains to Sam everything about the, 40, the missing $40,000. Everything that we, as the audience, already know. And, um, and Arbogast... Now that he has followed Lila here, he thinks he thinks that Marion she's probably hiding out in Fairvale somewhere. Where and there's so, a boyfriend, there's where the the, the money will be. Basically. And and so he's gonna go like he goes. But, he sets off to check all of the lodgings in and, town. And we find out that they have not involved the police because. Yeah, and we also find out it's been a week. Yeah, since Marion vanished. The reason they haven't involved the police is because her boss is genuinely like. Just bring the money back and we're good. Like, yeah, uh, he he genuinely knows that there has to be because he knows her. There has to be a reason that she would do this. Yeah, and I appreciate that that they because once again with the Hayes Code stuff, like they're not because and, and with slasher movies, the Virgin has to the Virgin gets to live and Marion is not the Virgin, but Mary, yep. but usually that is not the person that is considered. Um, what's the word? My brain just redeemable, not redeemable, not even that, but um, principled. Yeah. Moral character. Like the girl is a, even though she's and Hayes code would not like this because they're not necessarily married. And there's a whole like, you know, secret relationship thing going on. I mean, on. yeah, this, this but, is, this is based on a book, but if it were an yeah. original script based on the Hayes code, like Marion would have to be punished in some form or fashion. And, which she kind of be, is because be, she's murdered. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. She is like, it's, you know, based on, you know, the mores of the time, Marion is like, she's punished for being a thief and a harlot. Yeah. But, but the fact that they go out of their way to make it clear that they all know she's a principled person mm -hmm. and that there has to be more to this story. Yeah. Cause we all have a moment of madness. Like as, as, as much as, you know, Norman's moment extends a lot longer than everyone else's, but, but Marion's moment of madness, the one moment she ever had mm -hmm was the moment that doomed her. Yep. And it's like, I love it. But at the same time, like I enjoy, I like the fact that they make it very clear that like the police are not involved because everyone mm -hmm. thinks that she's a good person. Yeah. Like that's why they haven't involved the cops is because they're like, no, we don't want Marion to go the, to jail. Yeah. We don't want anything bad to happen to Marion. We just want the money back. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that mm -hmm. a lot. 
it's it's a little tiny sliver of a thing, but I love it. Yeah. But so Arbogast goes, we get a montage of him going to like all of the lodgings in yeah. and around Fairvale. And, and no then, one's seen her. And finally he shows up at the Bates, Bates Motel. Motel. And he talks to Norman and Norman's calm, cool, and collected looking well, good in fir- that. First, like Norman just starts to yeah. deny everything. He's like, no, we, yeah. we've not had a customer here in, in two weeks. And then he slips up. And then he slips up and he says, well, you know, oh, this couple that came in just last week. And Arbogast is like, but you said you hadn't had anybody in in like a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. Time runs together oh, out yeah. here. And like Arbogast yeah. is not, he wasn't born yesterday, but he was born last week. Because <laughs> like he's suspicious but, like, at the but, same time, this guy is a good, affable, nice guy. He doesn't see anything. Yeah. He thinks at the worst, the guy is hiding Marion. Mm-hmm. At the worst. Yeah. But Arbogast, you know, he decides to, he's like, well, you know, I know you said you haven't had anybody, but, you know, due diligence and all of that. Like, can I check your register? And so, the, you know, Norman pulls out the book and Arbogast has, like, a sample of, of, of Marion's handwriting compares it to Marie Samuels. Marie Samuels is like, oh, bang on, that's her. Marion, Marie Samuels, she had a boyfriend we named Sam. Sam. He looks up at the boyfriend comment, but yeah, and then and then that's you know Norman. He's like, oh yeah, you know, let me right, look at this her. picture again. He goes, oh yeah, her hair was wet when she got here. My bad. Yeah, and you know says, oh well, she stayed the night and then you know left left early the next morning. But like while he's giving his explanation for what happened he he kind of gets flustered and he starts like yeah. stammering through through all of his replies and you kind of see like arbogast is saying like this just doesn't you know quite there's add something up. i'm missing yeah and and then you know but he's like okay you know like you you've been very helpful fun like this you know this is the first information that i've had in a couple of days like i'm gonna you know, I'm going to take this and we'll figure out where to go from here. And he and Norman start to part ways. And Norman, like, while they've been talking, Norman is saying, he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go change. Like, I have to change, I change like, the sheets I, every week whether they need it or not. Yeah. And, and so Norman has, like, a pile of, like, sheets in his, in his hands. And, and he starts to go into room number one and, like, gets his hand on the door and then suddenly, like, backs away. And goes to the next room. And, and goes, goes on down. And Arbogast, like... He clocks it, but he then he looks it. up at the house and he sees... He notices a silhouette in the upper window of the house. And, and then he asks Norman, oh, well, who's that? And, and Norman says, you know, oh, the, it's, it's his, you know, invalid mother. And, and so, but Arbogast, he kind of gets the idea that maybe the person in the window is Marion. And, well, and, and so he's like, would you be hiding her by any chance? Like, would she have seduced you kind of thing? Yeah. And, and he asks, he's just like, maybe, maybe she paid you to, yeah. to hide her, you know, or maybe, you know, she asked you to be like her gallant protector and, you know, and she's like, she fooled you. And, and Norman gets angry and Norman says, he's like, I'm not a fool and I'm not capable of being fooled, not even by a woman. And then he other thing, she may have fooled me, but well, she didn't. Well, it's well, this like because like Arbogast is kind of taken aback, and he's like, "It's it's not a slur on your manhood," and and then Norman says, "Let's put it this way: she might have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother." And so then this is Arbogast is like, "Well, can I speak to your, your mother? mother? Matter maybe she sometimes old, old ladies like they they catch stuff. Sick old ladies are are quick off the mark. Can I talk to your mother?" He's like, "Nope, no. uh uh-uh. uh, absolutely not." And Arbogast he's leaves. Like, he's, he reluctantly. Yeah, and we see like Norman like very creepily grin as as Arbogast drives away, and he leaves. And he goes to a payphone not too far away, calls 
Sam, Sam and Lila. Sam and Lila and tells Lila that, you know, he doesn't actually suspect Sam anymore. Mm-hmm. And he says you know, he wants to talk yeah. to this old lady. He'll be back in under an he's, hour. Yeah, an he hour says, or less. He says he's not satisfied with the way that things shook out while yeah, he was there's at something the, off and there's he knows something it. there. And so he tells Lila to stay with Sam and he'll be he's gonna go back to the motel and that he will see them in an hour, possibly under. And so we see Arbogast go back to the motel and he kind of checks out I love this because he he checks out the parlor and everything and um and knows it's like there's there's nothing there and then goes um and then he heads up to the house. Yeah, he looks in like the safe in the parlor and everything just to make sure. Well, it's, it's beca- because he it, it's, yeah, because yeah. he because he asked how how Marion paid for her room and and Norman said cash and so he's looking for cash in the safe and there's yeah, none there. There's none there. And But it's been a week. He would have gone I mean true. Anyway, so he goes up the step up to the house and slips into the house and starts walking up the stairs. Another really terrifying, creepy scene. It is. And I love the way that we get. It's an overhead shot. Which happens in the shower, too. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. we yeah. get them kind of throughout the thing. But like, this is the first time that it's really prominent of this overhead shot of Arbogast coming up the stairs, like, to the landing of the second floor in um, in the Bates house. And as he starts to kind of go in, like, toward the first room at the top of the stairs, we see... A like from the top, the top we yeah. see from the top is like this quote unquote mother quote unquote mother come running out of the room wielding the knife wielding the knife stabs Arbogast in the chest and like knocks him down the stairs and, and then falls um, up we, we see going back for another stab as the camera comes yeah away. it's like he he falls down the stairs and with lightning speed mother is is down next to him on the floor stab 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 um and then we see it's three hours later and lila is worried they sam and lila are still waiting to hear from arbogast and lila is really really impatient and she wants to go out to the motel but sam sam thinks they should wait like arbogast may show up yeah and so you know lila she's like fuck it and starts to go anyway and sam is like Okay. I'll go. You stay here. Yeah, like you stay here. Like one of us needs to be here in case you know, like maybe like we miss him in passing. Kind like of. We thing. don't want to miss him, so you stay here. And Sam's also like maybe he got a hot lead and he just took off. Mm-hmm. She's like Sam. He called us when nothing was when he had nothing. Yeah. He would call us if he had something. And so Sam goes to the place. He, he doesn't yeah. find him. Uh, he comes back. They decide to go. He knows the sheriff, so mm-hmm. they decide to go see the sheriff. Basically, like in a, in a quick nutshell. Well, the yeah the um. When when Sam when he goes out to the motel and he's shouting around for Arbogast, he sees in the window he sees mother. mother. And so when he goes back to and tell, we see and a te- flash of the in the swamp, we, we see, see once Norman. Again, we see Norman like he's, he's grinning by the swamp. Yeah, and um, and when Sam gets back to the store, he tells Lila he couldn't find Arbogast or Norman. And says, quote, that he only, he only saw, quote, only the old lady at home, sick old lady, unable to answer the door or unwilling. Because apparently he went and knocked on the door. We don't see that. But apparently that's what happened. And, and so this, you know, this is when he suggests that, you know, Arbogast might have gotten some actionable intel and just gone on ahead with it. Um, you know, but this is, you know, Sam was like, okay, like, let's go talk to, let's go talk to the He's like, I know the sheriff. We'll go talk to the deputy sheriff. So they go talk to him and the sheriff does not want to believe them. 
he's known Norman for years. This this and this yeah. guy probably just went off on a tip by himself. That's well, what these PIs well, do. Well, but I love in this moment because because Sam you know, Sam says that he's telling the sheriff. You know, they they've woken the sheriff up kind of like yeah. late at night, and so the sheriff and his wife are there. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of in their den, and like Sam and Lila are telling this whole story about what's going on. And Sam explains that, you know, Arbogast was headed back to the Bates motel to question Mrs. Bates. And the sheriff's wife says, Oh, Norman got married. Yeah. And he's like, no, I, I think he meant his mother. And, and, you know, Lila like thinks that something is wrong and wants the sheriff to check it out. Um, you know, and the sheriff agrees. He's like, he's like, well, okay. Yeah. Something is wrong. He says, but it's with, it's with your detective. Because, you know, and this is where, you know, he, he assumes that Arbogast got some, some information and just, you know, want them to know he wants them, he wants to get the money. He wants to, yeah, he wants to get a cut of the money and, and they, you know, they insist, you know, this, this isn't the case. They want him to, they want him to contact Norman and, and like, you know, oh, come on, like, just, just go out there and check on it. And, um, you know, and the sheriff is like, you know, Norm, Norman's a hermit. Like he doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't do anything. And Sam was like, I was just out there. He wasn't there. And he's like, nah, no, nah, he's a hermit. Like he, he doesn't it, like, and he has, Maybe he just doesn't answer the door in the middle of the night. Like some people. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's like, he's a hermit has been ever since quote, that bad business that happened up there 10 years ago. Um, but the sheriff does relent and he calls Norman at the hotel and, Basically, the sheriff gets the information that, you know, that... Arbogast came and he left. Yeah. And and so um, the sheriff says, you know, your detective told you that he couldn't come right back because he was going to question Norman, Norman Bates' mother, right? Norman Bates' mother has been dead and buried in Greenlawn Cemetery for the last 10 years. And, um, and then the sheriff's wife chimes in with, I helped Norman pick out the dress she was buried in. Periwinkle blue. But then, you know, Sam's like, yeah. but I saw someone i, well, I it, saw well, hold, hold on the, yeah. the sheriff the the sheriff then says it's the only case of murder suicide on the on the fairville ledgers mrs bates poisoned this guy she was involved with when she found out he was married and then took a helping of the same stuff herself strychnine ugly way to die and then his wife chimes in norman found them dead together in bed um and so then you know, sam is like I saw a woman sitting I, in. I saw someone. He's like, I saw crazy. someone in the window. He's like, he's Sam specifically says, I saw an old woman sitting in the window. And the sheriff goes, are you sure it was an old woman? And so, you know, they, they insist, you know, well, <laughs> you know, they, like the Sam and Lila are like, no, like it was Mrs. Bates because, you know, Norman told Arbogast that she was too ill to be questioned and and then the sheriff is like, okay, well, if that's Mrs. Bates you saw in the window, then who is buried in Greenlawn Cemetery? So he is a little, he is going to, he, he will check it out in the morning. Yeah. Meanwhile, we go back to Norman uh-huh. and Norman and his mother have, it's the same overhead shot that we got when Arbogast was stabbed, basically. Yeah. Like, same overhead shot of like Norman going into the room. And we, we don't, hear a conversation yeah. and a fight. He's like, mother, you got to go. You got to go hide again. I'm not going to go hide. You can't make me. And mm-hmm. he's like, I will carry you. And she, you know, they basically just screaming back and forth at each other that he's going to, that she needs to hide in the fruit cellar. And we see him carrying presumably his mother, mother. down the stairs to the fruit cellar. Mm-hmm. 
And then the next morning, Lila and Sam show up after church to go with the sheriff. Sheriff's like, I went out this morning. Ain't nothing to see. Norman's by himself. Y'all, you just imagined it. You know what you need to do is what you should have done the first place and involve the police because we can actually spread like a net out and find Mm -hmm. her. If you ever want to see your sister again, that's that's what you need to do. But Lila just knows within her that something is wrong. Yep. Like, she knows that something is wrong is wrong with her sister. Her sister would not have left her like this without a, without at least giving word to her or something. Like in some she way, knows yeah. in her heart yeah. that her sister is probably gone. So Lila is basically like, fuck this. We're doing what we should have done this whole time. And Sam agrees. <laughs> and like, we're going to go to that hotel. Like we're going to register as a married couple. And we are going to search that place from top to bottom. Sam's like, let's do it. Like Sam is in on this at this point. Cause he's like, I know. Cause he goes, well, maybe I did see something. And she goes, Sam, you are not the type to see something. He goes, no, I'm really not. Like, yeah. He's like, he's like, I know that like logic dictates. I must've just imagined this, but that makes no sense to me as a person. Yeah. So they go, they do that. They register as man and wife. And well, and I love that, you know, they, they show up and, you know, Norman, Norman starts to check him in and they're, and, 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 and he's, just, and he's basically like, Oh yeah, don't know. Worry about filling out anything. And Sam is like, I'm here on a business trip. I need to sign in. I need a receipt. And, and I'm like, you need receipts in case something happens to you. Yeah. And it's, it is just, he's like, he's like, I like, it practically has to be notarized. I like, need, I paperwork. There needs to be a paper trail. There, there only needs to be, it's like 90% business. And he kind of smiles at, at Lila. Like, yeah. like we're, we're off together, but I'm on a business trip, but we're, I brought my wife. Yeah. But it, but I love, I love what it is, is that like, and like, like Sam, like Sam is suspicious that Norman isn't providing them with, you know, like that Norman doesn't ask for payment because Norman, they don't have baggage. And well, so, yeah, because like that, that's what I was getting yeah. to was that you know, Sam is suspicious that Norman is not asking for payment and, you know, and, um, and, you know, like won't give him a receipt and all these things. And like Norman is suspicious because they don't have any bags and all. And so it's like, I just love this kind of like, well, cause Ouroboros but, but when, of suspicion. He's like, I'll get your bags. And Sam's like, Oh, we don't have any. And then Norman's like, okay. And he turns to give him their room key. He goes, really? And, or show him the room and Sam's like first time I've ever been somewhere where they don't make you prepay if you don't have bags yeah and he's like oh yeah ten dollars yeah <laughs> like, like you caught me whoops and so like they go to their room which is number 10 and they've yeah on the way very surreptitiously Lila checks and room number one is unlocked yeah and they I know mean, that her sister the fa- stayed the, the fact that he gives them a room key I'm like this just feels like I was like it's the 60s I'm like nobody fucking locked anything but Lila, they know that that Marion stayed in the first room, so Lila tests the door and sees that it's unlocked. Yep. They they're like, we're gonna go take a nap, and they go to their room, and then they and, sneak yeah, out. and Lila Lila starts putting together a theory that you know that maybe Norman found out about the money and did something to Marion to get the cash so that he could get out of the so that he, so that he could like bamf out of like he get the fuck out <laughs> of dodge like, well maybe we can find out in a year if he builds a new hotel on the main road but that's about the only way yeah and but lila is like no like there will be some evidence in her room that, that proves something now and and so they sneak into the room yeah. they find like a slip of paper that has forty thousand. Well, sam, sam first notices that there's no shower curtain in the oh, room yeah. which is odd and then and then lila finds the scrap of paper showing that something was subtracted from forty thousand dollars which is just too much of a coincidence and i'm like this is dumb 
But at the same time, if you are looking for, oh, I like, know, you're gonna anything is gonna assign meaning. <laughs> oh, I know it. But again, I'm just going back to the whole. I'm like, fuck it, scraps of paper like flushed down the toilet is fucking stupid. But if she'd thrown it in the garbage, they'd have had the full evidence. But so yeah, so she they, they're now suspicious of Norman. They yeah, think Norman Lila, done Lila, Lila is like, I'm ready to fuck shit up. Like Lila is ready to go in guns blazing and like. Like, basically, like, get answers out of Norman and his mother. And, and so, you know, Sam's like, no, I will go distract him. You see if you can... Because at first, she doesn't even want Lila to do what she wants to do. <laughs> yeah. But he's like, okay, fine. This, yeah, I will... This, this, you can probably... You're probably a match for a little old lady. So I will distract... <laughs> yeah, this, I will distract Norman. You go up to the house. And by the way, Sam is really bad at distracting. <laughs> Absolutely. Sam, Sam, you failed your deception check, my dude. There's there's a podcast that I love. It's a true crime podcast called True Crime Obsessed. And they have like a tagline of their show is like, let the women do the work. Because like men are useless, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And like, just like, just let the women do it. Like the women will take care of it. And so like this movie, I'm like, Lila is a prime example of like, let the women do the work. Like just. Sam, Sam does save the day. He does, but but yes, Lila. This day would never have been yes. in danger had Lila not actually shown up and done the work. Yes, so they... Lila goes up to the house while he goes into the office talking mm-hmm. to Norman. Um, well, and I love that you know Sam tells Lila is like if you find out anything, like don't stop, don't pass go, do not like two hundred dollars. Me, get like, out of here. Yeah, it's like you go straight back to town and tell the sheriff. Don't worry about even telling me what you found. Just fucking go it's like you're probably leaving sam to his death if you do that but sam don't care sam doesn't know what happened i'm like sam Sam is a down bitch and i love it but Um, so so he goes to talk to to norman and we see her slip into the house and the the tension is just ratcheting of her what like of her like it and it takes a long time like we see like the tension is just extended building. and drawn out like of her like walking up and into the house um it's just it's delicious and it is nail biting um, and, and like and like she like as she's going through the room we are switching back and forth with norman a little bit a little but yeah but mainly like what we get is we see lila she's checking out mrs bates's room and everything is perfectly tidy and clean if a little outdated and, and there's, um, there's a divot on the bed. Yes, that and in in the book, this is one thing. Like when Lila goes, is like she kind of notes how like everything downstairs, like it's everything is so antiquated that everything looks like it should be in a museum. Uh-huh. And and but but downstairs is like you know everything is dusty and kind of like cluttered and stuff. And so when she gets up into Mrs. Bates's room. Everything is still outdated and, like, has that kind of, you know, should be in a museum look, but it's pristine. Like, everything is just, everything is, like, so well taken care of. And when she notices, it's not, like, she notices, like, yes, the bed looks like someone has slept in it, but it's that the, um, the, uh, like, part of, like, the covers haven't been pulled all the way back. And so she kind of flips back the covers and she notices, like, flecks of brown that she doesn't quite know what they are and i'm like yeah. okay but um, so then she wanders into a room kind of across the hall yeah. and yeah and it's, a, it's a boy's room like a young boy's room for the mm-hmm. most part yeah they're they're old toys and like a rumpled kind of twin bed some of his taxidermy stuff a some of his bit. taxidermy stuff yeah and, and so so and that some, kind of confirms that there are two people sleeping in this house maybe yeah and then 
we go back to <laughs> yeah, to to Sam and Sam failing hard. He yeah. Oh my god. Sam gets confrontational essentially because he's like ta- he, at first he tries to, like ease Norman <laughs> into like admitting that he could use some money to get out of here, but Norman's like, why would I leave? This is my world. This is my place. Why would I want to go anywhere mm-hmm. else? I grew up here. And he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, like this, this motel's my world. You know, like this is the house he grew up in, and you know, he and his mother have been happy here. And Sam, Sam just keeps getting, he keeps asking questions, and and Norman just keeps getting more and more anxious, and then the anxiety turns into irritation, and then he and and he te- out, yeah. and like and he tell like he tells Sam to leave. And then suddenly Norman realizes, like, wait, like, where's that woman that you were with? And he starts to, like, take off. But Sam, like, bodily kind of, like, tries to stop Norman. Because bit much bigger than Norman. It, and, like, it looks like he's, like, wider. He, like, yeah. more broad-shouldered. So he looks like, like he it, would Anthony, have the advantage. Anthony Perkins is very reedy. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a very thin guy. And so they kind of scuffle. And then we see Norman pick up something and bash it into... Sam's head. Sam knock him unconscious. Sam's yeah. down for the count. So Norman takes off as um, Lila is almost to the door mm-hmm. of the house. So she sees him coming. She rushes and kind of hides in the stairway to the fruit cellar. Yeah, she she hides. Yeah, she kind of hides and under the stairs. Let's just admit it. If we were Lila, he goes upstairs. We run out that front door and we don't stop. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, she he goes up those stairs and I'm like, I understand what you're there uh, for. I nope. <laughs> I know right I'm out. not going to lie. If I was already there in that position, I'd be like, I'm, I'm just going to tiptoe down here. But I'm going to take a right quick right upstairs look. and you think he murdered your sister. I No, I wouldn't care. I would See, do it. we are very different people. My ass would be in that car and I would be gone. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, Sam's still knocked out on the floor. I am gone. You don't have the level of like... <laughs> Curiosity. <laughs> not just that, but also like FOMO. Of like, I... I have to know i am such a timid creature at heart it is not even funny like there is no way i talked before another podcast about like how i would confront things i could confront like people if if i'm in like a fight no nah, if it's like a scary situation and i think i could my ass could be murdered i am gone <laughs> like i am in a car and i am like no way mm-hmm. but uh but yeah, I mean, I grew up in the woods, so I watch one scary movie and like I see things moving in the woods all night. It's just no. But so she, Norman goes upstairs. She goes into the fruit cellar, and and we have like once again the tension is just oh, yeah, ratcheting yeah. It's, as the camera yeah, slowly no. zooms in and she turns the- this old person <laughs> around to reveal a skeleton. No, it's not even a skeleton. It is like no. it is. It's closer to a mummy. mummy it is. Yeah. It is desiccated flesh. Like the empty- eye sockets always make me think skeleton because you yeah. can see where the bone is broken. And the well, yeah, sockets, like yeah. because it's 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 like the fleshy, like gooeyest bits. Yeah. Like it's it's gonna go first. Yeah, even if, and, and like, you it, you and can't behind- you can't like taxidermy eyes. I'm like those are, but behind her, behind Lila, mm-hmm. you see Norman come in the room dressed as his mother, and he's wielding the knife, and you're like, oh shit, Lila's gonna die, and Sam comes in at the last minute, tackles him. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness for and, Sam. And subdues Norman. And, but like that moment of tension is real because the first time I watched it, I mean, we all knew Janet Lee was going to die, mm-hmm. but I didn't know if Lila lived or not the first time I watched it. Mm-hmm. I genuinely didn't know. I was like, 
for all I yeah, know, the, Lila, Lila dies and that's what brings the cops out. The one thing that, like, I like, I remembered that Lila and Sam survived and everything like that. Yeah. The one thing that, like, I couldn't remember how it was done was, like, the reveal of Norman in his mother's clothes. Yeah, same. That I just, I couldn't remember, like, yeah. how that all same. shook out. So, um, so yes, but we, that, get, we get, the we, psychiatrist has been with Norma. Because and as like she's going to stab, I had my subtitles on because I never have caught would have caught this. Uh, Anthony Perkins, or I'm sorry, Norman, yelling, "I'm Norma Bates!" as he wields the knife. Never, never, yeah. ever have what I have noticed that in that yeah. scene without the subtitles because it's a lot of like jumble of information. Mm-hmm. But so then we see the psychiatrist been talking to mother, yes, not to Norman. The, and this is this is the thing of of like Hitchcock kind of absolutely hated having to like put this scene in the movie yeah but then like everybody was like okay audiences are dumb they're not gonna understand what happened and so he's like okay fine i think um, i think i get that like legitimately yes we need some kind we of need, and in, a- explanation in the book what it is is that lila has stayed at the hardware store and sam has gone and oh, so like Sam's explaining because like at this time like norman has already like he's already in the mental institution and so sam has gone and like talked with the doctor and so now sam has come back to the hardware store and like lays all of this out for lila yeah. is is how it happens but we get the um the psychiatrist is explaining like norman bates no longer exists he only half existed to begin with and now the other half has taken over probably for all time and lila asks did he kill my sister Yes and no. And then we have, because this, this is at a courthouse, you know, we have, we have these cops who are like, hey, 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 if you are trying to lay the groundwork for some insanity defense, knock that shit off. It's like, just because the cops are just like, we're not letting this one. And he's like, like, clearly this man has killed at least two people. Yeah. Like, it's we like, are not. And actually at that point, I think uh, the psychiatrist already said, do you have more missing people and like yeah we yeah. have two two young women that are missing he goes i bet you if you drag that swamp you go and find them too yeah and, and so and so yeah they're and like the, we're not letting this dude off like yeah well, but it's i but yeah I, I love the cops are just like ah no 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 you're not bringing your psychiatry bullshit in here and like try to get this man off and he's like that's not like i am i don't I am, lay the groundwork i i try to explain he's like i'm just explaining the rules you're like i'm just explaining like what's going on and so that's that's when like the psychiatrist like explains that everything kind of started 10 years ago when norman murdered his mother and her lover and he says he was already dangerously disturbed had been since his father died his mother was a clinging demanding woman and for years the two of them lived as if there was no one else in the world then she met a man and it seemed to norman that she threw him over for this man now that pushed him over the line and he killed them both matricide is probably the most unbearable crime of all most unbearable to the son who commits it so he had to erase the crime at least in his own mind he stole her corpse a weighted coffin was buried he kept her body in the fruit cellar even treated it to keep it to keep it as well as it would keep and that still wasn't enough she was there but she was a corpse so he began to think and speak for her give her half his life so to speak at times he could he could be both personalities carry on conversations at other times the mother half took over completely he was never all norman but he was often only mother because he was so pathologically jealous of her he assumed that she was that jealous of him therefore 
If he felt a strong attraction to any other woman, the mother side of him would go wild. When he met your sister, he was touched by her, aroused by her. He wanted her. That set off the jealous mother, and mother killed the girl. After the murder, Norman returned as if from a deep sleep, and, like a dutiful son, covered up all traces of the crime he was convinced his mother had committed. And then somebody asked, you know, well, why was he dressed like that? And one of the cops says, oh, he's a transvestite. He and said no. And, and that's when he says, not exactly. A man who dresses in women's clothing in order to achieve a sexual change or satisfaction is a transvestite. But in Norman's case, he was simply doing everything possible to keep alive the illusion of his mother being alive. And when reality came too close, when danger or desire threatened that illusion, he'd dress up, even, even to the point of wearing a cheap wig that he'd bought. He'd walk around the house, sit in her chair, speak in her voice. He tried to be his mother, and now he is. That's what I meant when I said I got the story from the mother. When the mind houses two personalities, there's always a conflict, a battle. In Norman's case, the battle is over and the dominant personality has won. And, and somebody asks, you know, well, what about the money? Like, you know, who got that? The swamp. It's like, these were crimes of passion, not profit. And then we see a uniformed officer. Like, can I take him a blanket? He's cold. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And we follow the camera, follows the uniformed officer down the hall. We see him enter the room and exit the room. And then we see Norman wrapped in the blanket. This is the creepiest ass shot. In the I know. And Do- no, the, the professor that we- paused it as the like overlays were happening. So, uh-huh. Like, those oh, I did mental, too. Those mental pictures are burned into my retina. Uh-huh. The, um, so now we get, you know, it's Norman in this room and he's wearing this blanket Mm -hmm. and we get voiceover by mother and we get mother's voiceover and, and it's, and it says, it's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son, but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now as I should have years ago. He was always bad. And in the end, he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man as if I could do anything but just sit and stare like one of his stuffed birds. They know I can't even move a finger and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of person I am. And then it cuts down to his hand, and there's, there's a fly resting on the back of his hand. And the narration continues, I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they're watching. They'll see. They'll see. And they'll know. And they'll say, why? She wouldn't even harm a fly. And we get this, like, grin. Creepiest creepy. fucking that, smile. That overlays, and you have the skull kind of just underlaying Just, it. like, yeah, under... And then all of that lays underneath as the, we see the car being pulled. <laughs> I've seen Marion's car being pulled out of the swamp. And it is fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. I'm like, like, guys, this is, this is probably the limit of scary movies that I do. <laughs> because <laughs> mental stuff is, like, so much more terrifying to me than almost anything else like slasher i can deal with i don't like like the saw movies which are kind of gore it's just not my thing so yeah no no no, no. it doesn't saw is not classified as a slasher movie saw is classified as a splatter splatter horror thank you that's that's what i was trying to think of but like that's not my thing whatever it i get no no nothing no i i like but grossed out no i liked the first saw movie because one carrie always two (laughs) because it wasn't as gory um 
it like it it wasn't as gory as like later ones got to be, and yeah. also like the reveal at the end of that movie like was a mind fuck. Yeah. After I was like, it was hard. I was like, you can't top that. I was like, you should have just tapped out at one. Anyway, that's but, a, that's a whole like, other conversation. But like for me, like I the scariest thing is what people can do. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I can. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I can watch a lot of other stuff. I just it doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. But like movies like Scream and like Psycho terrify me because they are normal ass people mm-hmm. that you don't like. Yeah. And, and like no joke, I got like. It was probably before we watched Scream, but I used to get like the nightmare of being chased like through a school <laughs> and mur- and someone trying to murder me. Like I've had that nightmare. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. It's not my friend. <laughs> Last night after I fin- yesterday after I finished watching this movie, I like turned on all the happiest shit I could find. I went and watched a fifteen minute like Ashling B <laughs> like, <laughs> like, comedy. I was like, I need to cleanse it. Yeah, now. give me some sage. Let me just. <laughs> Because, like, I have a very overactive imagination, and that is a Mm -hmm. huge piece of it. Like, that's a huge piece of why, like, as a child, I could not watch stuff like this. Yeah. Because I I would, like, legitimately, the first nightmare I remember having was about a fucking cartoon that wasn't even scary. It was a Christian cartoon, Kia. (laughs) It was called the, The Little Prince, I think, and it was about a gnome. Yeah. Or no, not a gnome. He's he's not a gnome at first. He becomes a gnome by the end of the movie. Yeah. But like the creepy ass things following him down the mountain. Mm-hmm. I had nightmares about those when I was yeah. five years old. I still remember the nightmares and how terrified I was. Mm-hmm. Granted, I'm not terrified of that now. But when but I you was still, five. You still remember the terror. Yeah. yeah. Like I remember what that terror felt like. And mm-hmm. the score in this movie gives me those same vibes. Mm-hmm. Like it is terrifying yeah. to me. Now, everyone else, it's classic. It's a great movie. Five out of five for, like, how wonderful it is. I am fucking terrified of this movie. <laughs> like, this was it, Kia. This is the only time you get me. <laughs> like, this is it. I can maybe do a Scream movie next year, but I cannot. Like, this was, oh, it's like, so terrifying yeah, next, to me. Yeah, ne- next Halloween, we just cover the first four Scream movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fifth one will be out by then. I know. <laughs> True. Um, but we, yeah, we uh, just, yeah. What do you rate it, obviously? I- I'm going to give it a four and a half. There's like, there's a couple of things that like, I don't necessarily love. Like I do think this is some of Hitchcock's best work and it is kind of, it's a seminal work for sure. Like it is weirdly genre defining and shattering. It is. And the fact that it kind of kickstarted a new sub genre of horror. Mm -hmm. Cause this is about the closest that Hitchcock got to horror. Yeah. 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 He typically stuck to like psychological thriller Mm -hmm. type stuff and and you know there is a difference between thriller and horror absolutely yes i can handle thrillers fine yes and uh, yeah like i said this this is the close that he got our audience Um, is now laughing at me because i'm so terrified of these things but i am like you don't understand man i grew up in the woods like there was nobody else around yeah i yeah i don't know and this is something like i've talked about before of uh, like one like i love horror because it is a safe space for me to kind of like work out a lot of my anxieties of like mm-hmm. having a generalized anxiety disorder i'm like the fact that i could be like sitting in my office like perfectly fine and then you know somebody drops something on their desk and i'm having a panic attack like you know i enjoy being able to like watch like a movie and it's probably like i'm just inured to it of 
I pick up on the clues. And so it's like, I like, okay, there's this, it's, and it's like so subliminal of like, I pick up on a slight change in the tone of the music and I'm like, Oh, jump scare. Yeah. I know. And, and shit like that. And also like for me, I've just had it ingrained like ever since I was a little kid that of like, it's a movie. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's, this just comes from like weird, like in a weird way, as much as like I enjoy being scared by those kind of things is that horror movies make me feel safe in a way. I can see that. And and a part of that comes down to and I've mentioned that I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Um my dad kind of inadvertently let me watch the first child's play movie when I was 3. Yeah. And I explained that to a friend of mine one time and he threw his head back cackling and goes i understand so much about you now yeah oh yeah that's not a lie yeah yeah yeah, for sure but it was and i'm like my dad did not like wake me up and like yeah. sit me on the couch next to him and hit play my dad worked nights i rarely saw him i was like i said i was yeah. three he was rare night that he was home i woke up in the middle of the night heard him was excited dad's here Went out and he was watching the movie. He picked me up and put me on the couch with him. Assuming, like, I was three. He figured I would go back to sleep. And, like, I lay down on the couch. And I I did kind of start to fall asleep. But, as I mentioned, I have FOMO. I'm afraid that, like, I am going to miss (laughs) out on everything. Had it... Like, I was raged when I was a kid. <laughs> and so I was just like, Dad's watching a movie. I'm like, I'm here with Dad. I have to stay awake in, like, every moment of this. And to be fair, I did pretend to be asleep at several times so that Dad would, like, just, like, like wouldn't send me back to my room to go to sleep. Like, I knew if I lay there with my eyes closed, he will think I'm asleep and I can stay here. <laughs> and I just kept, like, occasionally opening my eyes. And I'm like, there's this killer doll, like, wielding a knife and, like, stabbing people. And I'm like, this is fucked up. I'm terrified. But I'm here with Dad. Yeah. I'm perfectly safe. And so it's like I carry a lot of that mentality over into horror movies. It's like I think that's why it's a thing that I love of that mm-hmm in a weird fucked up way is that horror movies make me feel safe because I know that like what I've seen isn't real yeah, and it's different from like the terror that I feel on a daily basis in normal <laughs> life. See, I think mine comes from, and like, I never, yeah. I never had a problem with, with, with separating reality from fantasy. Mm-hmm. That was never something that I yeah. struggled with as a kid, but I didn't have a sister until I was almost five. Mm-hmm. As I pointed out, I lived in the middle of nowhere. And the yeah. only time I saw kids my age was at church on Sunday for yeah. like two hours. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Like other than that, like I hung out with some teenagers, but I was like, you know, three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like I was my own playmate. <laughs> I was my own best friend. Yeah. And so I had to invent all this stuff. Yeah. And I think that's where, like, my, like, my brain mm-hmm. will just kick off on those horror movies. And and so it was something that, like, I, as a kid, I struggled mm-hmm. with, like, sleeping. The actual, like, like, during the day, fine. Yeah. But, like, I, nightmares were a thing. Like, I used mm-hmm. to. That's the other thing, reason I probably have had anxiety a lot longer than I think I have is because I used to have, like, night terror type things. Mm-hmm. Not, like, waking up screaming, but, like, that waking up out of breath, can't calm down. Mm-hmm thing and i didn't know that, that was abnormal until i got married <laughs> and my husband goes 
no, that's not a thing. <laughs> and I was like, you mean you don't dream that your pillow turned into spiders and tried to kill you? He goes, no, I don't dream. He's also a freak, but that's a whole other side of the coin. He's a freak for totally different reasons. But like, He's I, a I robot would just, from the future. I would just wake up and like sometimes yeah. for no reason be panicking. Mm-hmm. Or at least I didn't remember. It was probably a dream. But like, yeah, I, I, I've done. The, I yeah. have grown out of that, unfortunately. And so now it comes into my waking life. I much prefer it in my sleeping life. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, much, much prefer losing like 20, 30 <laughs> minutes of sleep while I calm down to the, uh-huh. like the anxiety I get being around people. Yeah. <laughs> like much prefer. Like, I guess it's that moment of having that switch flip of I realize like, oh, people mm-hmm. are worse in real life than in my Well, yeah. Nightmares. And, and it's. Another thing for me of because we, this is like a whole different topic, but we also came up in the age of like, ours was kind of the first generation of like the school shooter. Yeah. And so a lot of my fears transferred from. I had nightmares about that too. Yeah. Well, because where I'm from, we had the West High School skewed. Yeah. And and that happened like thirty minutes from where I'm from. Yeah, this this is a weird, like fucked up thing. But like my cousin's cousin was at that school mm-hmm. when it happened, and so and then you know like a year or so later, like Columbine happens when I'm getting ready to go at, into school as a freshman. Yeah, and so it was like my fears changed from you know a mask serial killer stalking me in my suburb to like. Oh, at any moment, somebody's going to walk in here with a gun. And it's just, you yeah. know, like, anxiety's, like, evolved over time. Yeah. And and so now it's, you know, like I said, like, you know, like, somebody slams a door outside my apartment and I'm like, I, ha- like, I hide under the bed <laughs> kind of thing. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, but like, it's, it's just an interesting, like, a lot of it's also what you're exposed to. Mm-hmm. My family does not do horror movies just in general themselves. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I didn't, I wasn't exposed to a lot of that. Like, the first time I watched, like, I saw, like, a piece of Saving Herbert Ryan and my dad got his ass chewed out because <sighs> I was only, I was not the age to be seeing it. Private Ryan's R, right? I think. <laughs> Most war movies are. I think it's R. It's been, it's been a minute. Yes. But, like, I was fairly young and I was getting ready to go swimming. So, I was waiting, like, on the couch for people to come pick me up by mm-hmm. my house to go swimming because I lived. Yeah, yeah, Very close to a pool on the campground that we lived on. And my dad had bought, like, all day ticket. He'd bought mm-hmm. Saving Private Ryan. And so he was watching it with me in the room. And I, I was probably only 11 or 12. And genuinely, it didn't bother me. It never yeah. affected me. The, honestly, what affected me more was when he watched uh, uh, The Green Mile. And mm-hmm. I was in my bedroom. Did not know he was watching it. <laughs> did not know what he was watching. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing the screams from... Uh, from the uh who is it oh yeah yeah the, yeah that affected me far more than like the 10 minutes of of saving private ryan yeah. which was like the middle of the movie so it wasn't even that bad of a spot mm-hmm. but my mother was protective about what we watched to a point mm-hmm. like red yeah, arm where... movies were a no-no <laughs> where, until yeah. i was where, whereas i whereas well, i have well said enough. whereas i've said before in this podcast i'm like i had like unrestricted access to hbo and cinemax from the time i was like a the child. first rated r movie i saw was the om not not the omen the uh relic <laughs> It was <laughs> oh, and my, mom, my deepest apologies. I was 14, I think it was. Mm-hmm. My mom was pissed because mm-hmm. I was at a sleepover and we she was told it would only be PG-13 movies and mm-hmm. then someone pulled put out the relic. We watched that and then part of uh, the Snow White horror movie. Yeah. Um, I forgot what it's called. Ferris of the Mall or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Watched part of that and then we watched Eight Second. Like, those are the movies. 
I watched at this girl's house. And my Eight mom, seconds. Woof. I hadn't thought about that movie throws in you back, years. But like the relic, and I honestly wasn't bothered by the relic either. Can we also make that real clear? It's so dumb. I'm, it's, I'm very weird about what bothers me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. Something like Psycho, maybe it's because the relic's <laughs> such a bad movie. So, Psycho's so well made that I can understand <laughs> it. But like, but like, the, but my friend, we're driving back and one of my friends goes, yeah, that relic movie, we watched it and my mom goes, what was that? And I was like, oh, it was just some like monster thing. And my friend goes, yeah, da, da, da. And and mom said, what was it rated? I said, Get, immediately I want to cover because I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. So like, I think it was like PG-13. And my friend goes, oh, no, it was R. And I just looked at her, I was like, yeah. And my mom goes, mm-hmm. you, and so I wasn't allowed to go to a sleepover for a little while after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, next, yeah. We, we had very different to, childhoods. Yeah. The next one I went to, we watched like the, what was it? The Pos- Poseidon, the, like the 70s Pos- Poseidon, movie. Yeah. The, like, Poseidon 70s movie. Yeah. Where like, the ship turns upside down. Yeah. And I was bored out of my damn mind. It's, All of us were. Yeah. For that movie but yeah so it like we had very different childhoods and it's so funny <laughs> to think about it because like for the, other than the horror stuff mm-hmm. we we like a lot of the we same do. type of like dramatic type things but yeah it's just so funny that like to me this is infinitely more mm-hmm. terrifying than something like the relic like infinitely more the terrifying. relic is dumb i hated yeah. it oh yeah um, i barely remember it but i remember the vague premise yeah <laughs> anyway i well one you haven't rated it I did. I said. I said five out of five for like. Oh, I didn't for, hear. I didn't for, hear that. Oh, sorry. For like what it is, it yeah. is a seminal classic. It's not for me personally. It is not something that I will probably watch again mm-hmm. for a while, unless I'm like someone needs to see this movie, or I can watch it with someone and hold their hand. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. I mean, there are so many things about the, it that are phenomenal can, and stupendous. I there was something that I wanted to bring up, like mm-hmm. while we were talking about the movie, and I forgot about it. Mm-hmm. Was that. Like, this movie, it's referenced in so many things. You see, like, stills of it in mm-hmm. articles, like, clips of it yeah. in, in you know, film reels and, like, you know, in, like, TCM specials and things like that. To the point that, like, I really thought, okay, this isn't going to be watered down. Uh-huh. And because it is just, it, you're so kind of... Inundated. Inundated with it. Yep. And to the point... That when I think about this movie, it's like, it's almost felt static in my head. Like, yeah. it's felt, you know, like, it, not moving. Like, it's, you know, it's it it's existed in my head as a series of stills. Uh-huh. And so, watching this movie and, and like, specifically Anthony Perkins, uh-huh. he is just, there is, like, a grace that to him like he almost moves like a dancer like absolutely specifically seeing him in this role i'm like it was beautiful like it yeah. literally like re-watching this it suddenly like came to life for me in a way that it hadn't well, and, and i think in a long time it's one of those classics that i think yeah we know all about it we hear all about it but the but then you watch it and you are reminded mm-hmm. all over again why it is is like for me personally I'll, i mean it's it's probably more of a four four or so out of five but mm-hmm. when you look at what it did and mm-hmm. what it does and the staying power this is a black and white movie from 1960 mm-hmm. and the staying power of it is mm-hmm. just ridiculous yeah. like you said we, p- people reference it to this day it is referenced <laughs> In if you're making a slasher horror movie, mm-hmm. you're probably going to reference this movie in some way, shape, or form, even if it's to do the exact opposite of it. Exactly. Like, like 
that's yeah. that's the like this this is kind of when i say five out of five that's what i mean like but see but if you ask me like which would i rather watch i'm gonna put on north by northwest yeah <laughs> like and not just because of Cary grant but i love uh-huh. the spectacle of north by northwest yeah and, and see, I think and so, yeah. I think for me that's the difference of mm-hmm. like sure I enjoy spectacle a lot of times yeah. but I also like to me it's the stillness of this, this movie movies. yeah there it's it, the stillness mm-hmm. of this that is is where a lot of the terror comes in well and there's a lot of I don't know how to say this the right way I'm gonna say red herring movement mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily that it's just. It, it there's it's it's not red herring it's it's like there's misdirection in this movie yeah, yeah there's misdirection but i mean just like when she goes in and starts going through the drawers to find a place to put the money mm-hmm. that was a, a modern movie would cut that yeah like this movie was unaf- like hitchcock was unafraid to take his time and mm-hmm. make it give you all of I, these like they could do it this way you could go this way or it could go this way like and and that's he does kind of the same thing <laughs> with like rebecca a little yeah. bit and and, like, there are notes of I, all of that leading up to this. I think because, like, by the time he got to this movie, because, you know, there, it's practically, like, a 20-year difference between mm-hmm. Rebecca and, and, and I this. I was actually thinking Suspicion. I said Rebecca. But Suspicion has kind of some of the same some, yeah. elements to it. The But, I, you know, something that I was reading of, like, you know, when, like, when they got on set, Hitchcock, Hitchcock basically, like, he told Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins of, like, you are actors. I have hired you to act. You know what you're doing. Like, you know your job. He's like, I will not direct you unless you've, like, unless you've, like, done something wrong and it looks bad on camera. Otherwise, have at it. So it's very theatrical. It's yeah. very, like, like uh, stage in that way. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, he, like, that's, and that's the thing that I appreciate about Hitchcock was that he trusted his actors to know their job like yeah. for the like and for the most part it, it's and in a lot of what i'm trying to think and it's like it, in a movie like <laughs> knives out which is a brilliant mystery movie right <laughs> i love i, I love so knives much. out I, it's a fantastic movie but in that movie i would almost say and this is not to say that it's wasted in psycho but nothing is wasted in that movie every single mm-hmm. frame of that movie is important to the stuff it's building up to that is not the case mm-hmm. here. Well, it's you yeah. could cut out so many things, but then you're cutting the terror. You're or you're cutting yes. the the like. Where's it going to happen? That's where's because happen? that's because this movie is all about the buildup. Exactly. It's like whereas like with Knives Out, it's all about the clues that lead you to the solution. Ex- exactly. And like Knives Out was this, just the first one that popped in my yeah, head. Yeah, I know. I but know. Like that. This, because even suspicion though is like going back in his mm-hmm. whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Suspicion that paranoia is building for so mm-hmm. long. And it's kind of, but we don't get like the paranoia build in the same way in this, but it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the, like some of the movements that Grant does are unnecessary if you are just looking at the broader strokes. Mm -hmm. If you're just looking at the broad story of Psycho, we don't need to see her going through the drawers and putting stuff away and, Mm -hmm. and driving for three days. And we don't need to see all of that if you're just, if your goal is to get to the slasher and, and scare us. Yeah, but but building it up that way puts us in this sense of like the, mm-hmm. this paranoia that we know something is coming. It's, yeah, and we just don't know when. And like it's it's well, it's not it's because as, it is such a deft hand. Yes, what I was trying to, and the other yeah. thing that like I say is that the uh, um something about is like that you and I talk about a lot is that this movie is like even though you don't necessarily think about it, 
it, because there is like so much psychological stuff happening in this movie, you don't realize how much of a character driven story it is. Yeah, for sure. And so, um, the um, and so that's like all of those little character yeah. movements, and that's what I was talking about of like Hitchcock trusting, yeah, the trusting actors, Janet yeah. Lee and and Anthony Perkins of like letting them just kind of do their thing. And so I can't remember specifically like some of the choices that she made. But, um, but like, if you see like Norman, he's kind of like nibbling on candy at times through the Mm -hmm. movie and things like that. That was just Anthony Perkins had candy corn on set and he just incorporated it into Norman. Yeah. And, and so like Hitchcock just like, he liked the choice and he let him do it. And, um, we get things like that. And and also because that's the sixties, it's getting into that era where that was going to be more welcomed and acknowledged mm -hmm. and. And something that, it, not that it wasn't ever allowed mm-hmm. before, but improvisation has grown and grown and grown with the actor having more understanding of the character sometimes than even the director mm-hmm. does. Well, and, you know, and, and they were inter- getting ready to, to enter that period with the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and to go, you know, like I said, like with this being character driven is like, that's one reason why I love Scream so yeah. much yeah. of that. Yes, it is plot driven because it is a slasher so we have a tragic backstory that is informing like what is happening now because if you you know like scream her mother died a year ago and now a year has passed and it's you know now they're having this big house party and all these people are being murdered but it's about her journey it's about her journey yeah and and it and the thing is like um if you remember the great henry winkler plays principal Henry in that movie he basically died because the Weinsteins, uh, <laughs> like they were reading through the script and nobody had died in 30 pages. So they're like, yeah, somebody has to get got. And so they put it in. But it did serve a purpose because yeah. Kevin Williamson was like, okay, that actually kind of works because I had no idea how everybody else was going to leave the party later. Yeah. Like I had no idea how to clear out the house. So that kind of works. They found but, the principal on the goalpost that cleared out. The yeah, house. exactly. But for the most part, everything in it, like it's character driven and everybody has their character motivations. And so yeah. even though it is, it is a neat and like well-defined story, like it's still, it it moves at its own pace and like the characters yeah. do their own things. And so it's not motivated by as other like slashers are like throughout the previous era of like, we just have to make a body count. Yeah. And like, we like, there's no motive. It's literally, I'm like, you know, like I, there's podcasts I was listening to that was talking about slasher movies. And they said, you know, for the most part, it's like, you know, Michael Myers doesn't say anything. Jason Voorhees just kind of grunts. I mean, you know, Freddy Krueger's a bit mouthy, but, <laughs> you know, they're just there to like creatively kill people. I'm like, they yeah. don't have a motivation other than just to kill. Yeah. And and so that is like, that's something like about this movie of Norman doesn't he doesn't just kill people willy-nilly I'm like sure he like he could have killed Sam and Lila like you know he could have had the opportunity to do it he you know there are other people like he could have killed but he doesn't it's specifically like within like a set of circumstances that he does it and technically in his own mind it's not him that's doing it 
it's it comes from a different set of circumstances and it's because it's character driven mm-hmm. and and that is like it's, it's just, the story of norman it's yeah. not the, it's not the story of a serial killer or, or mm-hmm. someone of people being murdered it's the yeah. story of norman yeah yeah and and like i said like with scream it's the story of sydney mm-hmm. and and th- that's probably why i enjoy like the scream movies more mm-hmm. than like the other stuff that i've seen yeah but anyway, and, yeah, we have rambled way too long. I know that we have, but I, I did, I did. I don't remember if I said this on or off mic, but I was like, we're going to talk about Psycho and I will have a lot to say. <laughs> so, um, apologies for that. If you've stuck around this long, I will send you a cookie. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, especially our you, last 20 minutes of rambling about our own experience with horror movies. I was like, Sorry may, yeah, that, yeah, like, may, who knows? Maybe we'll cut that out and it'll be a fun, like, <laughs> bobo later. Oh, it fits too well with this. <laughs> True. But anyway, um, do you have anything else to add, Ellie? That's all. Anyway, that will get it for this episode of Couch Buddies. As always, we thank you so very much for listening. We'll catch you next time and have a happy Halloween. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Couch Buddies, why not leave us a rating and review over on iTunes? And while you're at it, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us by searching on social media. We're Couch Buddies Pod on Twitter, on Tumblr at couchbuddies.tumblr.com, and you can email us at couchbuddiespod at gmail.com. <laughs>